It's time for Twit This Week in Tech. Mike Elgin's here. Owen Thomas is here from Protocol. Oh, we're going to talk cars, too. Uh, Tim Stevens is at the Concorde d'Elegance in Monterey for Roadshow. All coming up next, including the Countach, where it got its weird name. IBM's PC turns 40 this week. And a plan by the Senate to open up Apple's App Store. That and a whole lot more coming up on a rootin' tootin' This Week in Tech. Next. Podcasts you love. From people you trust. This is Twit. This is Twit. This Week in Tech. Episode 836. Recorded Sunday, August 15th, 2021. Brian's OS. This Week at Tech is brought to you by ExpressVPN. ExpressVPN is an app that reroutes your internet connection through their secure servers so your ISP can't see the sites you visit. For three extra months free with a one-year package, go to expressvpn.com slash twit. And by Podium. Today's customers expect on-demand everything, even from local businesses. Stay ahead of the competition with Podium. They have free plans for growing businesses, plus all the power growing businesses need to scale. Get started free today at Podium.com slash twit. And by IT Pro TV. With seven studios and over 5,800 hours of IT training, IT Pro TV creates the perfect environment for you to learn IT. And they're always adding new content. Visit itpro.tv slash twit for an additional 30% off all consumer subscriptions for the lifetime of your active subscription. Just use the code TWIT30 at checkout. And by CrowdStrike. CrowdStrike harnesses the power of every click, every action, and every ally to grow stronger and stop cyber threats before they can stop you. Join the fight and experience the power of Falcon Platform free today at CrowdStrike.com slash twit. It's time for Twit This Week in Tech, the show where we talk about the latest tech news. I'm your host, Tex Laporte, and <laughs> we have a great panel all lined up for you. Mr. Elgin is back in town. Mike Elgin from Elgin.com and Gastronomad.net. Hi, Mike. Hello. This Week in Tex. This I Week in Tex. That's me. Uh, I'm excited. I'm going to get to go down. Actually, this outfit is going to be uh, bringing this down to Oaxaca for the Day of the Dead. Because it's not Halloween, right? You don't wear a Halloween right. costume. But you might right. dress up a little bit to visit with your ancestors. You'll blend right in. I thought so. Got the boots. No, it's it's going to be awesome. And uh, I'm really looking forward to it. Nice. I can't wait. Um, Mike does, and we should mention, well, we'll mention it later in the show, but these Gastronomad tours. I know Prosecco Italy is coming up next. Also mm-hmm. with us, great to have him, Owen Thomas, from now from Politic, no, uh, the, the protocol. protocol. I always said it wrong. Protocol. Senior editor over at Protocol.com, which our good friend Megan Maroney's over there now, too. Yes, she is our new workplace editor. Nice. So uh, we, Megan and I came up with a new term recently, de-opening. <laughs> What's that mean? <laughs> well, you know, just just like you briefly had guests back in the studio and then uh, oh, yeah. now, we're, now we're back. We're de-opening. Yeah. Yeah. All the uh, all the tech offices are de-opening. It's such a bummer. You know, uh, we're back wearing masks here. We can't have people in the studio again. It's just such a bummer. 
Get your vaccines, folks. Please do do everybody a favor. Just get your vaccine. Also with us, he's uh, at, in Monterey for the Concours d'Elegance and Speed Week, Mr. Tim Stevens from Roadshow. Hi, Tim. Hey, Leo. It's great to be back. What are you seeing down there? Oh, lots of beautiful cars. Uh, this year is the 50th anniversary of the Countach, so they had a lot of those lined up in the lawn, and uh, a, a bunch of beautiful Porsche 917 race cars, and uh, a lot of amazing stuff in the lawn. There's a new Lamborghini Countach, isn't there? Yeah, there absolutely is. Yeah, that was Lamborghini's big story, and probably the biggest story of the show, for sure. Well, it would be if I had $2.5 million to blow on a car. <laughs> oh, they're all gone yeah. anyway. They're all sold out already. Matter. Yeah, Lamborghini's only making 112 of them, and uh, they were all sold before the car was announced. So if you are one of those privileged, uh, lucky, very close uh, Lamborghini owners, then you've already gotten ahead of the curve, and uh, they're already gone. So what is the appeal? I mean, it was a, it was very, it was like the famous car of the 80s, right? Like the famous fancy car. <laughs> 70s, actually, yeah, 70s. was when things re- really began, and uh, it ran all the way through until 1990, and it really just defined what a supercar was for that era, really small, beautiful shape, uh, you know, big V12 stuck in there, uh, and so that really defined what it was, and it became iconic, it was the poster car of the 80s, uh, and so now for the 50th anniversary and for the Concours this week, uh, Lamborghini rebuilt the, that car onto basically the, the Sion, which is another current Lamborghini, so brought a lot of styling cues from the original Countach back to uh, a more modern car. So it's actually a hybrid this time, an 800 horsepower a hybrid? hybrid. 800? Okay, so classically, when you think of the Prius and other hybrids, you think of kind of not so much oomph, you know, kind of kind of slow <laughs> off the start and stuff. Right. How do you get a hybrid to be 800 horsepower? So uh, the hybrid system is actually pretty minimal. There's only about 30 or 40 horsepower that's coming from the electrical system. But interestingly, it's from supercapacitors. So it's not oh. using a lithium-ion battery pack like a Tesla or anything else. Oh. It's a supercapacitor, which means it charges incredibly quickly and discharges incredibly quickly. So while it has a limited amount of power, you can get all that power out pretty quickly. So what Lamborghini is usually using it for in this car is actually filling in the gaps in acceleration that you get when you're shifting gears. So instead of the engine kind of cutting out while you shift a gear, it can now do what we call a torque fill, which is basically to give you more thrust during those shifts so you don't lose any acceleration. So you go from 0 to 60 in 2.8 seconds. <gasps> but it's, wow. st- it's really a plug-in hybrid, right? It's going to mostly run off the battery or no? Uh, no, it's a very small battery pack, so it's really just meant to augment the performance of the car. Lamborghini does have a, a plug-in hybrid coming down the road. That'll be their next, the successor to the Aventador, which is their current big supercar. Um, but this is this is uh, basically just meant to augment performance. It's really not intended for a plug-in hybrid style all-EV driving, just to make it go quicker. I'm confused. So you, what, you can go 12 miles and then you have to pull over i don't understand oh no you still got a big six and a half liter v12 in the back so that's oh, the v12 give you is the still the vast there. majority oh. of your thrust yes yes it's, oh. it's a hybrid it's, it's not a full ev so I you need the big it. v12 to go anywhere and really the electric motor is just adding performance on top of the v12 so there there are two motors there's a little hybrid motor there's a big v12 motor and then there's big a ba- v12 yeah oh and the battery and, and, and pack a small is being charged right, up it, by the small motor and and right. merely to take over when you're shifting Right, and it's against a supercapacitor, so it's uh, it's a very different performance yeah, than quick discharge, a lithium battery pack. Quick charge up, yeah. In fact, I think it's the only production car using a supercapacitor in the world. Yeah, we I, we were very excited a few years ago. Steve Gibson was all over this idea of supercapacitors. Mm. He said it was going to change the world. The only thing I ever saw with a supercapacitor was a rechargeable screwdriver that I had. <laughs> it charged uh. very fast, uh, discharged 
all pretty fast as well. Uh, so it's interesting to see another use for supercapacitors. They're a long way from being used uh, in, in general for cars. Sadly, for any amount of range, yeah, yeah. they're super expensive, which is why this car is, you know, two and a half, three million dollars. Yeah. Hey, you got a couple mil? You could put a down payment on it. <laughs> Isn't that one of the things about the Tesla Roadster is that, um, you know, it kind of dispelled this pokey hybrid image of electric cars? Uh, basically, yeah, absolutely. Going to torque. You know, like- yeah, and that's always been Tesla's mo, which is you know we make really nice cars that are fast and really nice to drive. Oh, and by the way, they're also electric cars, uh, and that's really becoming the the the, the, the model of a lot of manufacturers these days are trying to build more fast, more interesting, more engaging EVs, which is really exciting to see. Uh, you know, even for a traditional brand like Lamborghini to be getting on board with hybridization now, and someday down the road they'll go on to the full EV program. Uh, it's it's definitely great. It's great to see. I love EVs, and uh, you know, there's yeah. it's pretty clear. I had a Model X, and uh, we have a Bolt, and now I have a Mustang Mach-E. They all have so much torque. There's nothing sluggish about an EV. That's a that's something maybe people thought right. because of the hybrids. They're yeah. really fun to drive. I would never want to drive a, a gas vehicle again. I love my EVs. So, so my son great. Kevin has uh, actually has a Toyota Mirai, which is a hydrogen fuel cell car. And he's the only person I know who has one. Yeah. Uh, Where does he get that filled up out of curiosity? Around the corner from <laughs> oh, his good. house is the okay. biggest uh, station, and they're, they're building up capacity. Perfect. Yeah, he can't drive. Like, he couldn't drive to, say, Seattle. Like, th- that would be out of the question. Yeah, because there's no hydrogen but, filling stations. That's the problem. That's right. That's right. But it's he a, loves it, the car. It's Maybe you can explain this, Tim. Toyota which really had an early leg up on hybrids with the Prius, has been very slow to go to EV. In fact, uh, I remember they were big donors to uh, Congress, uh, really effectively kind of supporting big oil, which is not what you'd think of, of Toyota. Their alternative is hydrogen. But there's a lot of evidence hydrogen fuel, besides being inconvenient, um, isn't very good for the environment. You have to make the hydrogen. Yeah, it was a big bet by by Toyota that hydrogen would be the way forward. As you said, they had a really huge early lead with the Prius, and they were the first really to market with a mass market hybrid, which which you know kind of took over the industry in a lot of ways. Uh, but they really thought that fuel cells would be the next step because batteries, you know, ten years ago were incredibly expensive, incredibly huge, and they thought, well, fuel cells are a more manageable technology. We can make that work better. But ultimately, uh, you know, as I'm sure you're going to see, Mike, the, the the availability of those filling stations really hasn't improved that much over the past ten years. If you're outside of California, you're, you're pretty much out of luck. Um, and so that hasn't accelerated, which is unfortunate because that technology is really good. For sure, Leo, uh, creating hydrogen right now is not very great for the environment. But, but ultimately, that doesn't mean that it has to be going forward. If there were a major investment in expanding hydrogen availability, then there would also be investments in hydrogen production. And at that point, the, the carbon equivalency of hydrogen versus gasoline would, would definitely swing in the favor of hydrogen. Yeah, the, um, but because it's right such a niche is- thing right now, it, it, it's not that way. The, the problem, as I understand it right now, is that they're essentially extracting it from natural gas. And so the mm-hmm. critics of it say, well, they, they take the whole industry of natural gas and say, that's hydrogen production. But it doesn't have to be from, from natural gas. It doesn't have to be unclean. The great thing, of course, is the only emission is water. So there's no, you know, and you don't have the as big of batteries from a Tesla or something like that to deal with after the fact. You know, like you say, Tim, I think if... Multiple manufacturers who were building these at scale. We had uh, stations everywhere, and they were 
producing the hydrogen in an environmentally clean way, it would be really fantastic. Unfortunately, it's not clear if that's ever going to happen. Because you could, in theory, make hydrogen out of water. Right. Uh, but right now they're cracking methane. There was a, yeah. actually a study just came out. Ars Technica had the story a couple of days ago that, you know, there's three grades of hydrogen. There's gray hydrogen, which is terrible. <laughs> there's blue hydrogen, which most of the hydrogen, I'm sure the Mirai is filling up on blue hydrogen. And someday there may be, but there is not now in mass production, green hydrogen. But this latest study said even blue hydrogen is, here's the headline from Ars Technica, is actually worse for the climate than coal. Uh, now, the way the study figured that out is they all estimated how much methane leakage there is. The problem with methane is a very small molecule. It tends to leak from methane pipelines. It's a much worse greenhouse gas than carbon dioxide or carbon monoxide. And so any leakage is bad. They estimated about a 3.5% leakage rate, which means anytime you're using methane and you've got it in a pipeline, you're you're really you know, doing a bad thing. So hydrogen at this point, so it's interesting. So, t so basically Tim, Toyota made a bad bet and that's put them kind of far behind. Do, are they going to do battery electric vehicles? Yeah, they absolutely are. And there are some concepts coming, which actually look quite good. Whether or not they made a bad bet, you know, it remains to be seen. This is such an incredibly early time for the EVs. You know, everybody thinks, well, Tesla's got this amazing head start, but it's the same thing if you look back at BlackBerry or any company like that. We're still at that that stage of the EV market in the U.S. It's still less than 5% of the U.S. market. Yeah. So it, uh, Toyota will have uh, quality EVs on the market within the next two or three years. And at that point, the EV market is going to get really interesting. So if those EVs are good enough, it really won't matter that They'll they missed the past five years. Yeah. Does uh, so? Kevin likes his MRI. He loves it, and he's it's it's kind Great of car. like a beta program. He's been interacting with Toyota, uh, the Toyota engineers on a whole bunch of things. Um, but it's it's actually a very luxurious car. It's very fast. It's very comfortable, and he has no problem getting hydrogen because of where he lives. So for him, it's it's just a yeah. perfect car. He got all kinds of subsidies too, so it was really yeah, sure. affordable. I think uh, according to Wikipedia, in 2019 there were 114 hydrogen stations in the U.S. Right. It's not exactly yeah. everywhere, but if you live, you know, if you live around the corner from one, so he can't charge it at home. He has to. Just like going to a gas station, he has to go to the hydrogen station. How, he, how much he literally goes to? He literally goes to an actual gas station that, where they have hydrogen uh, offers hydrogen. Yeah. But the thing is that as an incentive, they gave him six years of free hydrogen. Nice. So he's got a Toyota credit yeah. card, and he doesn't pay for it. How? 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 What's the mileage? I mean, how often does he have to go to the gas station? They they calculate it in miles per gallon. And one of the things with hydrogen cars is if you drive in a certain way, you can get incredible mileage so he can get you know 70 80 miles per gallon oh, equivalent nice. to gasoline yeah. so he doesn't have to fill it that often so nice you know. i think it's about a three or four hundred mile range if i remember correctly and roughly one kilogram of hydrogen is roughly equivalent in terms of the energy density of one gallon of gasoline conveniently so it's actually pretty easy to do kind of the math and compare how efficient they are versus a gasoline powered car in terms of of overall efficiency of course every time you say hydrogen i think of the hindenburg of course, that's what I call his car. <laughs> um, but I think they've found a way to keep it fairly. Anything that's going to store enough energy to propel a, a multi-ton vehicle down the road for hundreds of miles is going to have enough energy that if it's released suddenly will be explosive. That's lithium-ion batteries, well, gasoline, or hydrogen. Yeah, for sure. It's a question well, of can you make gasoline, it safe. Though, yeah, unlike gasoline, this is highly compressed. So uh, you talk about explosive power, but the the tanks that Toyota uses are like you can shoot them with a gun. They're, and they don't, they're literally they don't, tanks. They don't, they don't, yeah, yeah, exactly. The, the, but the, the whole fiber, thing remains uh, so compressed really the entire. Yeah, yeah. Interesting. Does water drip out of his exhaust pipe? It, 
it, and, uh, I don't think it's an exhaust pipe, but yeah, there's a little bit of water. <laughs> it's a little dribble. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, that's part of the emissions. And also, a water vapor is itself a, uh, a um, greenhouse gas, what? believe it or not. So that, is, that is something to be tracked. Uh, oh. But certainly, the, the emissions of those cars are very, very minimal. Compared I to figured the ocean is letting a little water into the air. So, uh, we'll <laughs> a little bit here. Maybe not worry about the cars so much. Hey, I am not going to. You can rest easy. Talk about Apple's... Mistake, as Ben Thompson calls it, their plan to scan phones. We've been talking about it since last twit. But Mike Elgin has an interesting take, and we're going to... Well, I guess we could do that right now before we take our first break. The reason, the real reason, Mike says, why everyone hates Apple's child porn idea. Yeah. So I did a little deconstruction on the opposition. So just to review, if you haven't been following uh, the incredibly good coverage on Twitter, this whole week on this topic. It's practically all we've talked it, about. <laughs> yeah. But but basically, um, Apple is uh, using hashed, uh, a, a hashed comparison of the pictures that you're going to upload to iCloud, but they're doing it on the phone. And it's the on-the-phone part that is, I think, causing the problem. Yeah, there's and really I three... Believe, I guess I'll go through it real quickly, but there's three yeah, things yeah. Apple's doing. Uh, there is comparing against the NCMEC National Center for Missing and Exploited Children's fingerprint database of, of known child porn images, comparing those against images that you're uploading and downloading from iCloud, basically doing what Google, Facebook, many other companies do, uh, comparing it against what you've stored on their cloud. That's one thing. And Ben Thompson says, and I agree, that that's fine. Everybody's doing that. You probably should do it because Apple is notorious for never reporting image child porn images. The second thing they're going to do is a little bit more controversial. Siri and Search are going to warn children if they're looking at adult pictures that's not the same fingerprint technology that's a perceptual uh image perception that says that looks like pornography and it says you shouldn't be seeing that and then if the kid says but i want to see it then it says if you look at that we're going to tell your parents and then the kid looks at it we're telling your parents that's uh, that's the second thing and then there's siri and search are going to also warn people oh I, i actually the second thing was sending and receiving i messages same thing uh, it's not that I don't believe they're using the CSAM hash from NECMEC for that. They're doing some sort of image recognition. But the thing that bothers people, you're right, uh, Mike, and the thing Ben Thompson says is a mistake is anything that's happening on your phone. The phone, many believe, should be sacrosanct. Now, go ahead. And I think that I think the consensus among the smartest commentators on this, including on Twitter and, and Ben Thompson, is just do it in the cloud. And everybody's happy. Um, the, but the, the way that uh, I, I think the problem is, first of all, Apple um, perceives something that's true that users don't proceed, uh, uh, perceive, which is that the operating system of your iPhone does not belong to you. It actually belongs to Apple. Uh, this is very explicitly spelled out in plain language in the licensing agreement. It says, you know, this belongs to Apple. This is ours. We license it. You license it from us. You can use it under certain circumstances, et cetera. So to Apple, iCloud and your operating system, y- your phone operating system is is all the same. There's it's no theirs. difference. Yeah. Right. They want to have this consistency thing that they do on everything. It's one of the reasons that's great about Apple. Everything's consistent and and so on. And they want to do everything in the cl- in on the device. If it's on the device, that means it's secure. But it's the on the device part that is freaking everybody out. And the reason is that no matter what this thing is, 
that they're putting on there. It's hashed. You can't read it. It's not actual child. There's porn, no images, et cetera, et cetera. Yeah. Psychologically, and wow. it's irrational, but psychologically, people don't want anything to do with child porn on their phone. They just don't like the idea of it. It's it's counter to you. You look at like I just got a new iPad. It's perfect. It's pure. It's it, you know it's wonderful. It's magical. The knowledge that there's a child porn database or something like that on my device really bo- you know really bothers people, right? And I think this is the problem. But again, you're not going to change human nature. Apple just needs to back down, run these. Uh, comparisons in the cloud and the whole thing goes away that's all they have to do oh and you agree i mean i is that first of all what's your take on this i haven't asked you i don't know well i think you know i think it's interesting because devices are basically useless without the cloud i mean i don't know anyone who yeah it's just an ipod if you're not connected to the cloud it's not Yeah. yeah and you know like the the convenience factor is you know just tends to make you want to use the cloud. So I agree with Mike that like just doing the scanning in in the cloud is probably the solution for ninety nine percent of what Apple wants to catch anyway. And you know, if someone is that you know um, paranoid that they're going to like cut their phone off of any cloud systems, that's probably a tell that they're you know that they're doing things that are suspicious. If that makes sense. Um, but yeah, I think Apple just mishandled the communication on this and and also in classic apple fashion doubled down and you know and said like you know we hear you but we're right and you know you all need to calm down um if apple had just said the part of the problem also was the way they announced it they conflated three different different technologies in one yes. message and that confused the hell out of everybody including some big name journalists if apple had yeah. just said announcement number one we haven't been, but many others suggest, and certainly others do, scanning images on iCloud. So we're going to start doing that using this technology, which Google uses and Facebook uses. Um, I don't think there would have been a furor at all, right? Tim, do you, do you agree? Yeah, I definitely agree. I think ultimately it's uh, it's such a hot-button topic that uh, it would be really difficult to to kind of roll something sweeping out like this without raising some eyebrows, but for sure, I, th- I think they did try to do too much in one shot, and ultimately because the messaging was not great, uh, and because, again, it's such a sensitive topic, uh, and because, again, they, they doubled down more or less, rather than listening and, and reacting, um, that just created this hotbed of, 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 of problem for them. So I, I wish they would, you know, hit the pause button on this and kind of walk it back and then just kind of take some time to readdress. I think that's really all that they need to do. Uh, it really wouldn't be that difficult to, to let this fear die down, listen to a few more people, get some more experts on board, uh, and maybe partner with um, an organization to, to, to do the announcement going forward uh, when they do roll things back out again. I think that's the way forward for them. I kind of disagree with you, Mike, though. I don't think that the – I think – I don't think it's the ick factor of the – oh, that database is on my phone. Mm-hmm. I think it is the notion – and you're right. Apple owns this. But there is this, maybe it's just the sudden understanding that Apple does own the phone. Because the perception up to now is this is my private device. And I know most people are concerned that Border Patrol can look through it. We, we talk a lot about Celebrite and their ability to take the data off of your phone. And that's offensive to everybody because the phone is such a personal thing. It's like my diary. And so any technology that intrudes upon the phone is perceived as... 
what, you're going to unlock my diary and look for child porn? That's offensive. And I think that for the, I understand the, that. Yeah. I think that for the tech savvy people that, that watch and listen to, to this show, uh, there's a concern about the back door, about the idea that, you know, okay, wait a minute, you can rummage around and find things on my device. You could also theoretically rummage around and find other types of content. And you had a great discussion on both Twig and elsewhere on this. But I, but I, I think that for the lay majority, that it's two things that really bothers people. The idea that there's a child porn thing on their phone. Yeah. And the second thing is that they're kind of, it's kind of like, you feel like you've kind of been accused. Like, for example, if you went to the the store to to buy something, they said, can you give us your fingerprints? You know, fingerprints are associated with accusation, with criminal charges and all that kind of stuff. The idea that they're always watching you to see if you're a child pornography a pornographer is just offensive to 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 common sense. I don't want to be accused. I don't want to be suspected of that sort of thing. I don't want anything to do with it, really. And I think that's the feeling Maybe, that, yeah. that, that I think lay people have. There are, there are sophisticated reasons and just visceral reasons yeah. to oppose this. But once again, Apple could just do it in the cloud and it all goes away. And I, I think it's interesting that Apple misread this so badly. They thought, okay, if we do it on the device, everybody would be more happy about that privacy-wise. And the opposite is true, clearly. Yes, so I think that was I think that's interesting that they sort of mid misread their user base so badly. I also think that it reinforces uh, the sense that Appy, Apple is kind of puritanical, like Apple mm -hmm. bans, mm -hmm. you know, they from the App Store, you know, they ban things like browsers that can browser can go to a porn site any safari browser can go to a porn site but they ban you know things like reddit because or telegram because well it can be used to see naked people it feels very old school and puritanical and i also yeah. think that that because remember the thing they're doing with the kids stuff is not about child porn it's about any explicit image right we're looking for explicit images i, I feel like Apple's a little out of touch with just the world in general, like, or maybe not. Maybe I'm out of touch. Uh, maybe. Uh, maybe they're maybe they're in touch with the whole world instead of just the real, U.S. Real they've people. got to deal yeah. with, yeah. Well, they've got to deal with countries that that are in fact quite puritanical, and and I think you know I, I applaud the other two things they're doing, and I applaud the intention behind this one. I just think they this whole thing doing it on the device is a huge error. But the other things, I mean, it's a real problem for young people growing up in the world today uh, with, with the amount of uh, horrific objectionable material. Oh, I agree, but I don't think it's away. Apple's job to protect the young people of the world, is it? Well, but, but, but uh, I don't think so either, but, but every time they have to, they're called to appear before any sort of parliamentary body, yeah. whether it's the U S Senate or, or, you know, the UK or whatever, they're going to be called on the carpet about this stuff. What are you doing about this? What are you doing about that? And they're going to want to have something in place where they can answer and saying, we're doing something about it. We're, you know, because at the end of the day, they're going to be pressured to do all kinds of this sort of thing. Only companies like Apple, Google, Facebook and others really can do something about it unless you have the even worse outcome of having the government directly just saying, well, we're going to we need access 
to so we can do something about it. So it's it's a problem, and 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 I think Apple's uh, trying their best, actually, in this case. Uh, oftentimes they don't in other cases, but I think in this case they're trying to do the right thing, and they just ju- they just missed the boat on this. Um, and and uh, but 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 ultimately, as you see in the news this week, everybody TikTok, you saw in the news three weeks ago, uh, Facebook and Instagram. Everybody's starting to do something about the problem of children and objectionable material. Uh, and it's, I think just that's kind of like one of those one of the stories of 2021, uh, 2021, which is that all these companies are finally doing something about this stuff. Shouldn't it be the parents job? Parents don't know what's going on. That's Should the big problem. tech be responsible to protect the children? I, I mean, think I, I think the part of part of Apple's promise, right? Like that, yeah. you know, like the iPad is, you know, is kind of the safe thing you can give your, you know, give your kid to entertain them. It's not, though, obviously. Right. I mean, <laughs> the adults are the customer. And if the adults want uh, tools that will protect their kids, then they're they're satisfying that demand. And I think that's reasonable. Yeah. Let's take yeah, a I break. Mean, In other words, yeah. the kid's device is a product that was purchased by the adult for the adult. I mean, look, Apple puts parental controls on. They were late to the party on that, but they do. And that's a, I I have no objection about parental controls. And really you can argue that this uh, text messaging thing is really just uh, another parental control because parents have to turn it on. And so parents will say, look, I don't want any objectionable material sent to or sent by my kid. And I want to be notified if that's happening. I think that's completely a reasonable thing. Uh, to offer offer as a parental control and let parents yeah. turn it on or not. But a lot of what Apple does is is not just for kids. It's for all of I mean, all of us. It's not just like, well, if you're under 13, you can't use Telegram. Uh, they've blocked, it's, they're notorious for blocking apps because they could be misused to uh, show adult material. The problem with all this, by the way, is that all of these companies, Facebook, uh, you know, Apple, Google, et cetera, are putting all these restrictions in place for, you know, 16 and under, 13 and under. They're not checking. There's no, there's no yeah. verification. Anybody can say they're, they're tw- 25. Yeah. Any 11 year old yeah. can go in and say they're 25. And yeah. 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 Parents often, I know, sign up their under 13s for Facebook, even though it's against terms of service. Because exactly right. nowadays, if you're a 12-year-old and you're not using Facebook, you well, actually, that's changed, actually. <laughs> right. And right. by the way, all of them are advertising to kids. They're, yes. they're doing the minimum that they can to protect kids from advertising, right. the, the minimum the government requires. We're going to talk, take a break. When we come back, there is a new bill in the Senate that might change everything. We are slowly moving towards, uh, uh, I think, some severe regulation of big tech. Owen Thomas is here from Protocol.com. He's senior editor. It's great to have you, Owen. Uh, love seeing you on the show. Same thing for you, Tim Stevens from the Concours d'Elegance. I just like saying that. Editor-in-chief of Roadshow. Uh, and I imagine you'll have some Countach. That is not a great name for a card. What does that mean, Countach? It is a, uh, a like a vulgar statement of uh, excitement in a certain region of Italy. So it's like wow, basically. It but sounds vulgar. vulgar than that. Oh it my god, Kuntash. Like okay, he'll have coverage of the new vulgar statement <laughs> from Lamborghini on Roadshow, I'm sure. And of course, Mike Elgin, our peripatetic wanderer who is home for the nonce, but soon to head off to Prosecco for the gastro nomad adventure there. I very excited because. Uh, Two months, we're going to go down and see you guys in uh, Mexico for the Oaxaca 
gastronomic adventure. I can't wait for the Day of the Dead. Our show today brought to you by... This is perfect timing. Express VPN. You may, you know, uh, everybody's spying on you these days. Your ISP, Google, everybody wants to know what you're up to. And, and of course, every browser has this thing called private browsing mode, or Google calls it the incognito mode. And, and even, I don't know, have you read the fine print? Because incognito mode does not hide your activity at all. Uh, you, no matter what mode you use, no matter how many times you clear your browser history, your ISP can see every website you've visited. Even if you're in incognito mode, every website you go to, every time you do a Google search, completely visible. You're, you're you. That's why. At home or abroad. I don't go online without using ExpressVPN. It's the best VPN out there. Absolutely privacy-focused. Uh, ExpressVPN is committed to protecting your privacy by not logging your visit. So there's no way anybody, even with a warrant, could find out what you've been doing. They actually use an amazing technology they call Trusted Server. When you sign on to ExpressVPN, push that big button on your app on Mac, Windows, iOS, Android, even smart TVs or routers. Uh, it immediately spins up in RAM on that, on that server, the Trusted Server. It runs in RAM in a sandbox. It cannot write to disk, so no record of your visit can ever be saved. And when you close out... It's gone out of RAM, no trace of your visit. That's what I call protecting your privacy. It's, it's really important to understand that no matter who your internet service provider is, ISPs in the U.S. can legally sell your information to ad companies. Same thing with your wireless carrier. ExpressVPN kind of hides your traffic from them. It hides it from bad guys, but it also hides it from your ISP. It reroutes your internet connection through those secure servers so no one can see the sites you visit. When you go to Google for a search, they're not getting your IP address. They're getting an ExpressVPN IP address used by hundreds of other ExpressVPN users. It's meaningless to them. Most of the time, you won't even know ExpressVPN is on. That's important, too. They invest in their infrastructure, so they're fast. Fast enough to watch HD video. Uh, lots of people put ExpressVPN on their routers. Yeah, you can install it on certain routers. Then the whole house is protected, and nobody's going to say boo because they won't even know. But because the, the connections are so fast, all you have to, you know, I mean, it just couldn't be better. You can you can watch video, you can do everything you want. A lot of times, I'll turn it on and forget it's on. I had it on my iPad for weeks. I forgot because <laughs> it's so fast. I love ExpressVPN. It's the number one VPN according to CNET. It's it's my choice. It's the only VPN I use. Check it out at expressvpn.com slash twit. Three extra months free when you sign up for a year. expressvpn.com slash twit. Please use that address so they know you saw it here. ExpressVPN. Protect your online privacy and more with expressvpn.com slash twit. Uh, new bill proposed by uh, three Democrats in, in the Senate. This is the beginning. I think we're going to see a lot of this stuff. And I'm not sure if this is posturing or if it's if it's really serious intent. Dick Blumenthal, Amy Klobuchar, uh, and Marsha Blackburn proposed the brand new, I'm going to call it the OAMA, OAMA, the Open App Markets app that will force Google and Apple to allow third-party app stores 
on their platform. Now, I have to say, I don't, I'm not sure how this changes what Google does. They already have a setting that says you can go to a third-party app store. You have to turn it on. Maybe it'll force it to be on by default. But it is a big change for Apple. And man, I can see Apple just hating this idea. Remember, introducing it in the Senate, if you remember your schoolhouse rock, it's just a bill on Capitol Hill. It's not, it's not a law until it's passed by the Senate passed by the House, reconciled, and then given to the president for signing. So we're still a long way off from it being a law. And I don't know what the prospects are. But wow, this is uh, this is the beginning, I think, of some very aggressive um, control over Apple and Google, and particularly over Apple. What do you think, Owen? I think that this bill is, you know, it's it's probably not going to make it all the way in anything like its current form. I mean, Apple just has too much at stake and they spend too much money (laughs) right yeah (laughs) lobbying uh, yeah (laughs) yeah Uh, um and you know i but i do think that you know apple's going to have to give something up it may be control over the payment mechanisms in the app store like give you know making it easier to put a third-party uh payment processor on there the big thing you know the big bargaining chip might be giving up on the 30 percent uh, cut now the the thirty percent cut that the app store takes was modeled after iTunes, and that was back when you would buy a song for a dollar and you know just the way Visa Mastercard worked for small payments, um, thirty cents barely covered the credit card processing fee on that ninety nine cent purchase. Um, it's a dated uh, you know it's a dated percent amount. It's you know it's probably too high of a rake on modern high value apps. So I think that, that that definitely might be on the table. Um, Google takes the same. Both companies offer uh, cuts for uh, subscriptions after a year and so forth. But I have to point out, that's the cut Xbox and Sony uh, take from their app stores. I think Steam takes the same cut. It's, it's more of an industry standard, maybe because Apple's established it as an industry standard. Yeah, which is, which is by the way, a good indicator of, a, of an oligopoly, right? If there's yeah. no, you know, no incentive to compete and offer a better, right. you know, no, no one's coming along and saying like, hey, we've got an app store with a lower take. So developers, you know, come, you know, come jump on this app store. Well, that's Partly actually a good point. I mean, that that's an antitrust thing, isn't it? Apple, right. but yeah, that's a very good point. There's no market mechanism here that's forcing Apple or Google to offer a lower rate. And part of it is that, like, they do offer great market access. Like, you know, getting your app in the App Store means, like, instant distribution to more than 100 countries and, you know, and more than a billion devices. And that's a, you know, that's an enticing proposition for a lot of developers. But it doesn't work for everyone. You see this in the, you know, in the Fortnite trial going on right now. Um, and you know, it's it is really confusing because you, in the game console world, you do have this thirty percent take, and that's basically, you know, justified because of the economics of console video gaming. Um, but you know, the, you know, Microsoft, for example, has been going through just gymnastics trying to explain, well, like we think it's okay in the Xbox Store, but not in other other app stores microsoft of course is on the other end of things because now they've got their apps which are uh, mostly distributed through apple and google because of course we know microsoft was a big flop in mobile and now they are in the interesting position of being an app developer dependent on these app stores so they're kind of <laughs> uh, you know uh, on, yeah. on the other side of the argument now. Yeah. 
Uh, I should say that this bill doesn't mention Apple and Google specifically. It just says any person that owns or controls an app store for which there are more than 50 million United States users. Actually, that's interesting because that might also mean it affects Epic and Steam stores and others. It does say not only do you have to eliminate the monopoly, but you also uh, have to allow third-party in-app payment systems that, you know... uh, that's exactly what Epic wants from Apple, right? We want to store on uh, iOS and we want to be able to have payments for things like Fortnite go through our store, not go through Apple. So there's no cut. So how do you write a law that covers, you know, um, PlayStation and iPhone? Yeah. You know, like right now it kind of treats them as the same thing. I mean, this could wreck the console, uh, you know, the console market. It also, Apple has privacy things that, uh, App developers can't contact the uh, purchaser directly. That is also uh, covered in this. They call interference with legitimate business communications. A company shall not impose restrictions on communications of developers with the users of an app through the app. Apple has a lot of strictures on what an app developer can do talking to his users. In fact, they don't let you know who your users are, really. Uh, I mean, any any good developer is going to figure out kind of a way around tricks. <laughs> well, you know, like you get them to give an email address and then you right. get their email address right. and then it doesn't matter what Apple says. Yeah, well, Apple's pretty, you know, under the guise of protecting privacy, they work pretty hard. Um, what are the chances of this, Mike? Is it a long shot, this bill? No, I don't think it's a long shot at all. I think it's 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 very possible that something like this will actually become law. Times are changing. I think... Yeah, the, 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 this is one of the few areas where Republicans and Democrats generally agree. Let's all just screw Silicon Valley for different reasons. Can. For different yeah, reasons, sure. But, <laughs> but anything that, that suppresses their power, I think you know, on both sides of the aisle, everybody's happy about it. I will say one thing. I, I you know, Google is clearly not a, a monopoly power. They don't have a monopoly power in. You know, they have a, you know, an, another version they just give away and, you know, lots of, we all know about that. And the Samsung is, has a stores, others have third party stores on, on their phones. Google the question really I don't that. think the industry has really answered or the courts have not really answered is that in the world of iOS, is the iOS world the market? And if it is, obviously, uh, Apple has a perfect monopoly and should be. Uh, should be regulated as such or broken up or something should be done about it. If, if if that's the market, that's a monopoly. Or are they not a monopoly because the market is actually the smartphone world instead of just the iOS world? So it's, a, it's an unresolved question. I tend to think that Apple is a monopoly and that they that the market is the iOS market because there's no, you know, there's there's no overlap between the world of Apple and the rest of the market, other than third-party developers who choose to develop on both. But I really think that, you know, this this is really pointing a gun at Apple. Uh, and and the question is, is that if Apple's an, a monopoly, then this makes a lot of sense. If they're not, then, you know, this is probably overreach by the government. Personally, I don't care. I mean, I think that if they did allow third-party app stores, most people would still use Apple's uh, because of the protections, because they, you know, they they have this rigorous process for what they allow in the app store. There'd be a lot of more dangerous stuff on third-party app stores, probably. Uh, 
and they would have to compete in that realm and sort of convince users, please use our app store and here's why, you know, that, that might be a good thing. But I think the fundamental thing is the, the courts or, well, the courts, the courts have to figure out whether Apple is a monopoly power or not. And if it isn't, then, you know, this is overreach. Could Apple legitimately say, um, you know, you can, okay, okay, you know, this law passed, you can use third-party app stores, but it voids your Apple Care warranty. Oh, I don't uh, think they could do that if that's the law. They, I, I think they, 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 can't take, they can't take a but, penalty against the uh, user for doing well, what's I, their legal requirement. Well, we'd have to see how the you know how the law is drafted, but you know could the could the law force Apple to you know service and maintain um, phones with with unvetted software? Well, that's Apple's point, isn't it? That if you're going to use a third party store, uh, we can't guarantee the security of the phone at all. I think that that'll be their defense. I mean, if they are indeed forced to put third party app stores on, they're going to be behind so many warning dialogues and messages yeah. and things that you're going to have to tap through. That it's going to feel like walking down a dark alley, you know, with a trench coat on before you're allowed to download any app for many of these services. So I think even if Apple is forced to do something like that, they'll make it so onerous that nobody will actually yeah. want to. But if indeed, as one said earlier, if this uh, hybrid solution comes out of this where they are just forced to enable third-party payments on their existing platform, that would be a huge win for consumers right there, and that'd be great to see. Is this an example of uh, having a, a semi-literate or non-literate, uh, a tech-literate, group of people make decisions about how tech companies run uh, their business. And I mean, I think some would say, look, there's a perfect example of the Senate is clueless. And while I admire what they're trying to do, this is a very bad way to do it. I'm sure Apple's um, position Le- will be that. Leo, one of the things that I like to do as a, as a opinion columnist on tech is I always like to kind of look at China as a leading indicator. The Chinese government is freer than the yeah, U.S. government they in terms of taking action. <laughs> the uh, the uh, schoolhouse rock for the Chinese government would be, oh, just do it. <laughs> you do whatever you well, want. You're the president. Yeah, yeah. Exactly. And, <laughs> and specifically, they're cracking down on all these consumer-facing technology companies, and they'll give you a million reasons. Pundits will give you a million reasons. But there's only one reason, which is power. Right. It's all about power. The tech companies have too much power, yeah. and people who get into government – they want all the power. So fundamentally, this is about about the power over society, over you know how 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 the nation works. And you know, for example, I mean, China isn't that why fit- we have a constitution and we are constructed the way we are because we know the politicians want power, and so we make sure that they are limited in what they can do. And we have you know three branches of government to self you know self check and and all of that. But the founders what, never never imagined a world in which in which corporations would basically be running almost everything. Yeah, but I don't. Want, but I think but they did the imagine a world where, like King George the Third, government has too much power, so they introduced all these checks and balances to slow down and yes. constrain what politicians could do. But the power. Do you think politicians power need more power? No, but power in, in in comparison to citizens, right? That's that's the that it's like how much power does a citizen have versus the government? That's the power they they focused on. That's the only one they were aware of, not the power of of trillion dollar corporations yeah. uh, who are who are lobbying. Who they are, never you know, con- they probably never thought of that. I suppose. never conceived yeah. of such a thing. Yeah, I mean the British West Indies Company was powerful, but it wasn't exactly culturally dominant. <laughs> so that, right. that makes a lot of, that makes a lot of sense. 
Um, all right. Well, we're you know this is going to be over the next ten years or whatever, next few years. It's going to play out very interestingly as uh, Congress does more and more to limit tech. You know, and Mike, you could say it's just for power, but I think there you could make a, a case that societies it's in society's interest as well. Yes or no? Well, I think I think their intention uh, on many of these uh, initiatives that we're going to be see coming out, uh, you could make the case that it's for society's interest. I mean, they, they have to; it has to appear to they be couch some, it that way that it's not really what they want. Yes, but I think I think some will. I mean, it's it, the problem is the, the heavy handedness of it. Yeah, the, the, you know where you don't know, you know the the possibility for unintended consequences when you start muddling around with tech companies is enormous, and so I think that you know this is the thing that we as as observers who pay attention to this stuff need to keep our eye on. Like, yes, if your intentions are good, great, but what are the unintended consequences of this? We got to think those through. And it's hard to do if you, you know, especially with tech, because it's complicated. And, and if you're not particularly technical, it might be even more difficult to do. And I think nobody disputes the fact that while the staff of these members of Congress and senators uh, probably do know what they're talking about, the uh, rep- electric representatives often do not. Right? The thing is, there there's a there's a pissed off developer in every congressional district. <laughs> that's true. That's true. You nailed it. <laughs> that's, that's you know, and, and, and they're often, you know, they're calling they're the office. Business. Yeah. Right. You know, um, that, that's where Apple, I think, is on the back foot is that, the, you know, there, there's a lot of people who are affected by their policies. Um, and, you know, everything, you know, everything they talk about in terms of like the success of the App Store and all the, you know, all the economic activity it's generated, that is now kind of backfiring on them because, yeah, that that economic activity exists. So you have a lot of people's livelihoods at stake. And I think Apple, um, I think Apple definitely needs to take bills like this seriously, but they also need to take the underlying unrest among their among their developers series absolutely that's something they've historically not done a very good job of uh i think they've been ignoring developers for some time and there's a lot of people um like the author of uh, overcast i his name escapes me at the moment but it was you know very and who were big apple fans and loved the app store in fact did very well in the app store and then uh now have turned against apple saying uh, yeah marco arment saying <laughs> they're not listening to us anymore. You know, you actually, there is a fourth branch of government now. It's called money. <laughs> and <laughs> and uh, the checks and balances, uh, you know, I think money's going to weigh in pretty strong here. Uh, you know, we know that Google and Apple and Facebook spend millions now lobbying, as do all the big telecom companies, and pretty much have been getting their way in Congress. Yeah, I, I, it'll. I I really want to watch Owen. I think you you have an interesting point of view. I really want to watch who wins this struggle between the lobbyists and uh, and the Republicans and Democrats who, for different reasons, want have, have are trying to shut down big tech. And I agree with you, Mike. What they're what China's doing is is really a telltale because they don't have to go through yep. Congress. They're just saying but China China's complicated too. I mean it's it's got a very complex bureaucracy. And so, you know, right now with the the big tech crackdown that's happening in China, my colleagues for, uh, at our protocol China vertical have been writing about this a lot. You've got, you know, you've got various 
agencies like the cybersecurity agency has been going after um, companies trying to go public. And now the securities, uh, you know, their equivalent of uh, the SEC in China has been kind of saying, wait, 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 now now you're killing off the golden goose. Um, so it's been. Oh, that's interesting. It's, it, it's a little more complicated just because, you know, you have you have all these, you know, yes, you've got the central, you know, the central committees, but you've got all of these kind of power blocks within China's bureaucracy, too. So it gets a little more complex. Well, my best example for China being a leading indicator is the social credit system, which, you know, we, we've been talking about for a long time and it's so horrible and it's authoritarian and totalitarian and all that kind of stuff. But then uh, at some point I wrote for Fast Company, uh, I think last year, uh, I a, a, a compelling case, I think, that, that the United States has a social credit system, too. And it's just oh, we absolutely. do it. We don't, yeah, we don't do it. We do it one piece at a time, one company at a time, one app at a time. But if you add up all the ways that corporations can essentially cancel you, prevent you from going to bars, prevent you from traveling, prevent you from uh, getting uh, affordable health insurance, prevent you from all these things, it adds up to a China style social credit system. Yeah. And so, they, you know, they, they're they're not they're they're a techno authoritarian government, but but they, they're also doing things that that we'll do some version of that at some point or we'll be confronted with the choice to do or not do those things at some point because they're they're basically responding to events. They're responding to political opposite opposition. They're responding to antisocial behavior, same kind of stuff that exists everywhere in the world. So I think I, I tend to think we should we should really look at what China chooses to do and think about what we're doing as well and and think about how we can sort of not be like China. It's interesting because um, in China, Jack Ma, who was the richest, probably the richest private citizen in China, and Alibaba Group, the Ant Group, which were probably the most powerful uh, private businesses in China, were completely shut down. President Xi just, you know, almost disappeared the guy. He disappeared for months. And yeah. uh, Ant Financial's IPO was days away. And they said, no, nope, you're not going to do that. They have absolute right. control over uh, this segment of the uh, of the country where here in the United States we have zero control over uh, the richest people in the country. Right. And and Jack Ma is a, a lionized figure within China. He's uh, very, he, very rich. He, he was sure chastened, wasn't he? Exactly. I mean, he, this is, you know, he's like the Jeff Bezos of China. And he was, you know, starting to get a little too big for his britches as far as the Communist Party was concerned. And they they just shut him down like, like it took him out like yesterday's garbage. Yeah, that just shows I mean, you it's, it is about power, isn't it? They didn't want him to be too yep. powerful. That's right. Yeah. Um, you know who's powerful? TikTok. <laughs> <laughs> Speaking of China. Speaking of China, TikTok. Now overtaking Facebook as the world's most downloaded app. Uh, you know, you never can really know uh, because it's complicated, but um, a, a survey of uh, downloads in 2020 puts TikTok at the top uh, of all apps downloaded. Number two is Facebook. Number three is WhatsApp, then Instagram. It's interesting. It's all social, isn't it? Facebook Messenger, Snapchat, Telegram, Likey, which is kind of like TikTok, Pinterest, and Twitter. The top 10 apps are all social. Poor Twitter. Aw. <laughs> Number 10. Aw. 
It was number nine last the year before, so yeah, it's number ten with what's the opposite of with a bullet? Uh, <laughs> going, TikTok overtaking a lead, Facebook, a lead balloon, a lead balloon. Actually, the <laughs> biggest go, right? the biggest loser uh, is Facebook Messenger, which was number one in 2019, is now number five, which I think maybe is telling about if you trust this ranking. Uh, is it's it's uh, from the Nikkei Asia based on app I, Annie. I just have the feeling that people are going from Messenger to WhatsApp, so it's yes, it's all Facebook. That's I think right. I think that's exactly yeah. It didn't really didn't really change. WhatsApp was number three last in 2019 and number three again in 2020. Also, these these are downloads. Everyone has Facebook. Ah, good point. Redownload mm-hmm. Facebook. Oh, that's an interesting. Uh, so the point. fact that yeah. the fact that it's still up there, you know, it's huge and it's still adding. Tons of people. I mean, TikTok would have to be number one for like a decade to to overtake Facebook, probably. Yeah. yeah. But it's yeah. you know, it's definitely something to to keep an eye out for. And it's it is the irony going back to what we were saying about China cracking down on this tech sector. Uh, you know, they were so proud to have in TikTok finally a global social media success, um, and then Trump kind of blew that up for them. Um, yeah, isn't that funny? It was only uh, what ten months ago that TikTok was going to be sold, <laughs> and, and and now that that deal like it's, gone. Yeah. it's completely gone. gone. Like yeah. Oracle, yeah, nothing, nothing. You know, yeah, that's that's pretty interesting. I would imagine that China, rather than shutting TikTok down, what China is very interested in doing is using TikTok, and so it's 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 exerting its uh, soft power through TikTok. In terms of you know what kinds of it, and by the way, speaking of puritanical, TikTok's very puritanical. Um, they they don't there's no nudity on TikTok or anything like that. Instagram is much less puritanical, and that's probably also because of the Chinese ownership. But I tell you, any social cultural kind of like phenomenon on, on the internet right now, it's happening through you know, it's it's getting posted on TikTok. Yes, you know, a viral video. Yes, right now. You see that little TikTok bumper at the end. Pretty soon I'm going to have to start doing a disclaimer. You're right. You do. You see the little TikTok uh, bug. I'm going to have to do a disclaimer that my son is a TikTok influencer before we do any more coverage on TikTok. He crossed 100,000 followers this week. Went from 50 to 100,000 in five days. And that actually shows you... I didn't tell him this, but... Oh, I guess the, I guess President Xi must like your cooking videos. Because because that just shows you that at some point TikTok said we're getting behind this algorithmically probably but uh, and that's this I've watched him because he's done a lot of he's studying how do you go viral on this platform and uh, and there's a lot of uh, kind of wisdom going around amongst influencers well here's what you need to do and some of it's accurate probably some of it's apocryphal but it's really interesting as he tries to push different things to see which levers make you help you go viral his last video got more than two million views and i think that those two are kind of hand in hand it's kind of very interesting I had a really experience uh, this week uh, that made me appreciate just how big TikTok is right now, because I think most of us tend to think of TikTok as being really popular with the youth crowd. But I was sitting at a little cafe here getting some breakfast, and these two gentlemen sitting at the bar who had just met each other, who were both well in their 70s, were talking to each other. And I happened to notice that they were recounting their favorite TikToks to each other. Uh, 
ask if you'd seen this episode. Like, did you see the one with the dog that tore up the apartment when the person got home and they were cowering in the corner? And they're just going back and forth recounting TikToks to each other. It was it was wild, but um, that that made me realize just how mainstream TikTok really has become. Absolutely, right and, and and as you said, Mike. I mean, Lisa will show me something on Instagram, and I'll say, "Oh yeah, I saw that on TikTok a couple of weeks ago, a couple of months ago." <laughs> oh yeah, well, it's completely dominant. The, the the other thing that that TikTok did, which is really kind of something ripped out of the you know social media playbook of a decade ago is make it easy to share TikToks on other social media. So you see TikTok videos all over yes, Twitter. They were so smart. Feed. Yep. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, do, do you remember how like Facebook and Twitter and LinkedIn were all fighting with each other over cross posting and all of that, all of that, I, that whole idea of like you take something and you easily cross post it from you know from twitter to linkedin or twitter to facebook that all kind of fell apart they they shut off the apis they cut off the access um tiktok you know tiktok said like we don't need to be proprietary about this like get the stuff out out in the world and everyone's going to be talking about tiktoks and it worked it's so obvious (laughs) it always amazes me that companies want to be this uh, siloed thing because it's so obvious you know get your get your stuff out everywhere why? Uh, well, I, I'm not sure that I'm not sure that TikTok's ubiquity is something that they're loving on YouTube and Facebook. No, they may not. You know, like I, I, yeah, right. right. Exactly. Yeah. TikTok loves it. In fact, if you recall, TikTok got famous by spending a billion dollars on advertising on Facebook. So yeah. they, yeah. Know, their whole model has always been about co-opting other social networks and redirecting eyeballs to themselves, and it's it's been very successful. And what you're seeing, of course, is Facebook. Uh, Twitter and YouTube all doing TikTok style shorts. That's what YouTube calls yes. them. Uh, fleets. Right. Is that what they call it? Fleets. Fleets um, are dead. Fleets. Oh, they kill fleets already. Yeah. yeah. One out. But I bet you they come up with some other. You know what? Twitter has historically <laughs> never. Under... They killed Vine too. They could yeah. have been TikTok. They, right. They they've historically never understood this. What is Instagram? Instagram has. Uh, stories, right? That's their TikTok. Basically. Yeah, I mean, in, right. In, Instagram has has essentially found a good strategy, which is copy. And I think that yeah. you know, by copying Vine, by copying uh, TikTok, they've kept a lot of their audience that they might otherwise have lost. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I totally agree. Uh, let's see. I'm looking at the clock. We're gonna take a little break. Come back. I gotta. I gotta pay attention. I have so many stories I want to talk about because I have such a great panel. So nice to have Mike Elgin in the house. When he comes home, we get him on the air. Next, you're going to Prosecco. That's sold out, right? Uh, actually, actually, uh, we had uh, somebody who uh, a couple moved forward in time to the next one. Oh, and we have an opening. Yay! So if anybody wants to join join us in Prosecco. Um, Last minute, You're, we have a we have a room for you. What uh, what is the date of the Prosecco experience? Okay, that one is because it's not on your site next, anymore. It's ne- oh, it's there. No, no, no it's there. It's, um, there. it's um, it's next month. Let me see. I'll get it. There here. it is. Prosecco experience. Yeah. So there it September is. September sixth through eleventh. That's it. And you uh, it says sold out. And you got to you got to change that button there. You just had a cancellation. That's right. That's right. Last chance Labor that. Day in Italy. Come on, you know you wanna. And then again We're in May. Ed. 
next year. And- Restored farmhouse, uh, no hotels. Oh. Uh, everything's outdoors. Oh. Everything is exclusive. So we, we never even see a tourist. So I like that. That sounds yeah. amazing. I know. It's delicious too. <laughs> I know. And then after Prosecco, the next one is Oaxaca. Is that the next Oaxaca, one? Oaxaca. That's right. That's, that's right. Gonna, for Day that of the one Dead. Is, is sold out. Lisa and I are going to be on that one. Uh, but there are some coming up uh, later in the year. So it's a small group experience. There's a few other couples. That's right. Amira that's right. and Mike uh, are your hosts. Amira is the best cook I've ever met. But she also is really good at making friends in whatever town. And I understand you get, I'm really looking forward to it. She won't tell, she won't say though what we're doing, right? It's a surprise. It's everything is a surprise, (laughs) but I will drop a huge hint, which is to say that the Prosecco Hills are in Veneto, which is the same uh, province as Venice. Uh And so the culture of Venice sort of pervades up into the hills. Uh And so it's food, wine. And really an amazing culture that's very different from Southern Italy. If you're familiar with Rome or even Milan, which is uh, a little bit west of uh, the Prosecco Hills, it's a unique little culture filled with beautiful people who have beautiful environment and incredible cuisine and wine. Of course, Prosecco uh, and uh, other wines. So, and, and COVID hasn't stopped. I mean, I know there was a period of time when you couldn't do it, but now it's it's opened up enough. You can Americans can go to Europe, you're, and then they can get home again, which was part of the problem. Right. Uh, well, you you may not want to go home again after this. Yeah, but, uh, I know. Oh, the, but but northern Italy, northeastern Italy is actually. If you've heard, you know, there's been a little flare up in Italy. That's in southern Italy. Right. So we're going to the part where there's really not much going on COVID wise. Uh, and so, you know, it's, it's, uh, all green lights where everything's a go. You can go into Europe and you do have to be vaccinated. Somebody's saying, though. Oh, I want to meet people. You meet people. You just don't meet tourists. You meet Italians, you meet locals. <laughs> right. Oh, absolutely. Yes. Yeah. That, yeah. Exactly. Right. So <laughs> we, we know the top winemakers in the region. We're good friends with some local chefs. Oh, how fun. Uh, we're, we're good friends with Can't chefs. Wait. Just like all over the, the world, best now. chefs. Yeah, that's right. That's right. So it's it's really uh, it's really high end, but also we interact with the real culture. So it's it's really a completely unique experience. I have, I have this distinct feeling that this will not be our last gastronomic adventure. I have a feeling you might see more of us. So wonderful, <laughs> wonderful. gastronomad.net. Owen oh, Thomas is uh, also here. Protocol growing fast. You've been hiring a lot of people. What, what is what? Did, tell me about protocol. What is the point? We're about the people, power, and politics of technology. So, um, you know, we definitely watch what's happening in Washington, but we also really care about Wall Street and Silicon Valley. And it's it's about linking these power centers together and really understanding how things work on a on a detailed level. Um, so right now I'm overseeing our uh, our fintech coverage, our financial technology coverage. So that's everything from payments uh, to online brokerages like Robinhood and uh, and their troubled IPO, and then you know and then uh, the recent rocket up in their shares, uh, and also banking. Lots of action there. Um, we're covering cryptocurrency, and uh, we might be talking about that in a bit, right? Mm, yes, we will. Very interesting, and it's uh, it's free, right? It's not, there's no paywall. It's free. Uh, sometimes we ask you to subscribe to a newsletter to read a story, um, but uh, those those newsletters are really fun, and I they're am. free also, right? Yes. So it's all ad supported. That's really you're kind of going counter to the the trend these days of either paywalls or subscriptions or something. 
We have um, we've made no secret that uh, we're thinking about kind of a pro component to to uh-huh. protocol, um, but that's down the road. Yeah, and, yeah, and I apologize because I think I'm using an ad blocker, but uh, <laughs> I will turn it off. It's got to be tough now to do ad supported stuff. I know it's tough for us. That's for sure. Uh, that's why we started Club Twit because we 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 really want to explore having uh, our listeners and viewers supporting us directly rather than going through advertisers. Tim Stevens Road Show is your show. It's a CNET. Is can I say podcast? Is that a bad word? Uh, it's a whole site within within CNET. It's a basically. site, yeah. So there's videos, but here's your review of the Kuntash, which. Is Piedmontese for wow? I have learned now. Thank you. Yes, yes, indeed. <laughs> and it is a wow. Yeah, it's a hell of a thing. Yeah. Uh, so great. So if you're into cars, this is this is the site for you. Obviously, pretty cool. And are you still doing the racing, the ice racing, and all that? We haven't had enough uh, ice in a long time for ice oh. racing. Sadly, it's been two years now that we've not. Oh. So I think, thank you, climate change, for ruining the greatest oh. form of motorsport on the planet. But hopefully, maybe this season uh, we will. But getting into um, rally crossing a little bit more, so we'll do okay. the same kind of thing. Yeah, I, I saw that. My Subaru and uh, yeah, and uh, just had a really fun time. Uh, I got to drive uh, Honda's ID car simulator um, in Indianapolis. So basically, the, the sim that all the pros get to train on, I got to go driving Ooh. that thing with full motion and everything else. Oh, what fun! So that was pretty awesome too. Oh, I love Indy cars. Oh, that sounds like a lot of fun. It it's kind of sad you don't have ice in Upper New York State. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, we even what? had uh, um, some lakes lined up on the Canadian border, and even they didn't have good enough ice this past winter. The club that I've been racing with um, has been doing ice racing for sixty over 60 years now, and they've had exactly two seasons with not enough ice uh, for racing, and those have been the last two seasons. So if, you, uh, if you're still not a believer in climate change, uh, not, the anecdotes are, are too thick to, to ignore, but it, it's, it's really unfortunate. Actually, yeah. it's good news for me because Lisa and I are trying to figure out where do we move in climate climate change actually david pogue has a whole chapter in his book about that and uh and i i love upper new york state but i said but lisa the winters are miserable but maybe not <laughs> not so much yeah it's, it's changing in your favor <laughs> meanwhile we're looking at the yukon and going for the north because i like the cold so uh, you know maybe we'll sell our house to you Leon. yeah, yeah maybe that might be it yeah summertime in uh, upper new york state is uh <laughs> warm as winter time our show today brought to you by Podium. I don't know if you've heard about Podium, but it is a very exciting. This is now this is modern. You know, there, there was a time in uh, in uh, in the world where you know if you were a business and you didn't have an email address, well, you weren't nothing, or you didn't have a web page, you weren't nothing. Uh, nowadays, believe it or not, if you're a business and you're not texting your customers, you're missing out on the hugest revolution in business. Text messaging. I think part of this is because of uh, the pandemic. We kind of got used to the idea of, you know, curbside pickup from your favorite restaurant and, you know, watching movies at home and visiting your doctor over Skype. Your customers have grown to expect a, a more straightforward, more direct way of doing business, no matter what your business is. That's why 90,000 local businesses of all sizes have turned to Podium. You don't have to be a big business, but what, of course, if you are, it's fine. Podium can help you stay ahead whether you have one location or a thousand. They make doing business as easy as sending a text. When texts get open, business gets done. And Podium can do a lot with a text. For instance, uh, my dentist uses Podium. After the checkup, I'm leaving. I get a text. It says, hey, how was the visit? 
if you liked it, would you like to leave a review on Yelp? And it was very easy, and I did. Uh, you can do that. You can ask for reviews. You can answer questions. I think I like the idea of making an appointment. I started doing this with my hairdresser over text messaging. It's just so much easier. It's easier for employees, too, because with Podium, you have a single inbox, no matter how your customers are reaching out, which makes it much easier for your employees to monitor and stay in touch and get responses back quick to your customers. Uh, you can use it to actually get payments. In fact, there's a, a, a Podium customer, a dentist in New York City. He had a million dollars overdue collections. You know, they were slowly getting to everybody calling them. He signed up for Podium, sent everyone a text payment, collected 700000 70% in two weeks. It's not that people weren't didn't want to pay. They just needed the reminder, and the text message was perfect. Great way to schedule an appointment, schedule delivery, to sell things, home service providers. Uh, you know, the last time a, a window broke in the house... I sent text messages out to a number of different glaziers. The one who got back fastest was the one who got the job. Podium, baby. It is the easiest way to stay in touch, to sell things, to to get reviews, to get payments. Today's customers want on-demand everything, even from local businesses. Stay ahead of the competition with Podium. And I should mention that the open rate for text messages is so much higher than for any other medium, well over 90%. Nobody ignores your text messages. That's why you need to use Podium. P-O-D-I-U-M. They've got free plans. If you're a small business, you can get on board for free, but know that they'll be able to scale with you as your business grows, and it will. Podium. Get started free today. P-O-D-I-U-M dot com slash twit. This is an amazing text messaging platform that can transform business. Podium dot com slash twit please use that address so that they uh they knew they know that you saw it uh, on twit podium.com slash twit big birthday this week <laughs> i love the register the register is so good at headlines beige against the machine the ibm pc turns 40 5150 not just a medical emergency <laughs> also the beginning of the office brick. It was on August 12th, uh, 1981. Big Blue released the first IBM PC. We didn't call it the 5150. We call it the PC. Um, and it transformed a, an industry because up until then, there were lots of personal computers, Commodore and Atari and Apple, uh, IMSI, MITS, all had made personal computers, but they were very hobbyist-focused. When IBM arrived, it gave it a serious business cachet. And remember the full-page ad that Steve Jobs took out in the Wall Street Journal saying <laughs> from Apple, Welcome, IBM. Seriously. They might have underestimated <laughs> the impact IBM would have. You Do you remember, Mike... Uh, the first PC when it came out, do you do you have a memory of that? Maybe you're not old enough. Um, I was not um, super paying attention at the point where that came out. It was more like the mid '80s when I started really getting into computers and stuff like that. But once I, you know, in 1990, I started editing a computer magazine that very quickly became Windows Magazine, and that whole, you know, magazine thing in the '90s was. 100% a direct, uh, you can draw a direct line to this very event that you're talking about, the creation of the IBM model 5150. And so, of course, we, you know, we were always writing about the history, the ancient history of the 
of of the you know during the eighties of of the IBM PC, and you know it really it really there are very few things that change the course of technology the way this did. It could have gone in whole different directions, but because they use open components, because they had a reverse engineerable BIOS, because they uh, idiotically uh, went uh, got in bed with Bill Gates. Um, <laughs> That's that a great story, by the way. <laughs> that set the tone for everything to happen for the next 20, 25 years. So, yeah. It was open. They chose off-the-shelf parts. The only thing that was proprietary was the BIOS. I don't think they designed it to be reverse engineerable, but it didn't take very long for Compaq and others, uh, Phoenix and others, to say, oh, we can make a PC-compatible BIOS, which meant that within a year, Compaq was selling a compatible. It would run the same software, run the same opera. Oh, and that was the other smart thing. And the dumb thing that IBM did, they were looking for an operating system for the PC, uh, they f they came out to, to Monterey, California, because DR-DOS was a very popular uh, operating system uh, in the CPM days. And Gary Kildall, who was a creator of uh, DR-DOS, Digital Research uh, founder and president, was famously flying his private plane and declined to meet with IBM. <laughs> yep. So they flew up to Redmond, Washington, where there was another young upstart company, Microsoft, known for its basic... Not for an operating system. They met with Bill Gates and said, uh, we need an operating system for the PC. You got one? Bill said, um, yeah. He didn't. But he knew of a company called Seattle DOS, which had a DOS that would be compatible with IBM's 8088 chip, the chip that they were putting in there. It's an Intel chip. And uh, he, without telling the owners of Seattle DOS went across the street, said, I, you know, I'd like to buy Seattle DOS. Didn't mention that there was another uh, company in, interested, bought it for a song, and then turned around and sold it to IBM as PC DOS. The other thing that uh, Gates did, it was probably the single biggest business move in history. He made a deal with IBM, and I don't know why IBM agreed to this, not to give it to them outright, not to sell it to them outright, but to retain the rights to it. And and he looked like he was twelve at the mm, time. Um, yeah, we got a, we got an offering. <laughs> I mean, but but to, to me, actually, a, that's funny because Seattle uh, DOS came from Seattle Computer Products, which was staffed by high school students. So <laughs> this right. remember in the early days, this is in the early uh, late late seventies, early eighties. This was a hobbyist thing. Nobody was right, serious. Exactly. About this. Yeah. I mean, he set the tone. I think as a, as a historian of Silicon Valley, he set the tone for the industry. So you had these well-meaning uh, uh, companies actually producing good products that were, you know, they were sort of relaxed about things. And then you have this bare-knuckle, aggressive liar come along <laughs> and just, just, just have this just hyper-aggressive uh, attack on IBM, saying that he had things he didn't have, and then a massive work ethic to go with it, willing to just do whatever it took. I mean, when he did the Altair basic um you know he lived in a trailer in a, in a yeah. strip mall yeah uh, and worked you know he dropped out of harvard and worked night and day to make that deal happen it's not like he's lazy oh god he's, no. it's just a combination it's just a combination of massive work ethic lots of brains no ethics and being a predatory businessman basically exactly and yeah. that set the tone for the silicon valley we know and love today <laughs> he bought a pc dos uh from seattle computer products for twenty five thousand dollars like 
the same month that IBM came to him and he didn't have anything. Um, just prior to the launch of the uh, PC on the August 12th, on July 27th, he, he went to Seattle to us and said, I'll give you another 50000 for full rights. Um, and they didn't know anything about the PC. They said, okay. So for $75,000, he bought an operating system, which basically made Microsoft. And then he made a deal with, with, with IBM saying, well, we'll keep the rights. We'll just license this to you. And I don't know why IBM agreed to it, but what it made possible is the compatibles. Because then he was able to sell MS-DOS to Compaq and all these other uh, makers of PC compatibles. And it made it com- completely 100% IBM PC compatible. Which well, is good the thing for Apple us. Went through. Right, exactly. But this is the thing that, you know, the, in, among the hobbyist market, software was just nothing and hardware was everything. Uh, they, you know, the hobbyists like, uh, you know, the, the Chaos Computer Club that Steve Wozniak was part of, they would just write software and hand it around and it was free. It was no big deal. And then the computers were the thing that right. monetary value. And, and Bill Gates had the vision to understand, no, uh, whoever owns the software has all the, all the power. Don Estridge, a skunk works project out in Boca Raton. You know, IBM is up in Armonk, New York, up to, up your way, Tim. <laughs> not quite so far north. Not too uh, far away. <laughs> but not too far away. Uh, so they said, look, uh, you know, we're known for mainframes. Let's send a small team of engineers down to Boca Raton, and they're going to design something. What was the code name for the original IBM PC? I'm trying to remember. Had a good code name. Uh Project, let's see, Project Chess, according, but I don't know if that was the code name for the original PC. Anyway, they designed it. You may remember the, uh, do you remember the ads for the IBM PC? Acorn was the. Acorn, yeah. Code name. Yep, thank you. Um, Charlie Chaplin, remember these for the first, let me see if I can find one. Yeah, the beautiful ads. While you're finding that, it's interesting that the low-end model of the IBM PC had 16 Kilobytes, kilobytes, not of, of, megabytes. I just bought, I, I just bought a, a, an iPad that has sixteen gigabytes. I know, of RAM. I know, and some consider that uh, low. <laughs> Charlie Chaplin uh, with some of the original IBM uh, PC ads. They were going after business. It didn't the uh, the base model, which was fifteen hundred bucks, did not have floppy disks or a hard drive. Heaven forfend. It had a um, cassette interface. And you would save your programs and your files out to cassette. They did offer, if you were willing to spend more, you could configure it all the way up to $5,000. You could get dual floppies. No hard drive. There it is with the dual floppies. That big old CRT. You could either get it in a color, kind of a hideous... I can't remember how many colors it had. Uh, 256 colors. Or you could get it monochrome, green on black. Wow. 1981. 40 years ago. It's not that long, really. No. no. But boy, the world has changed thanks to that. Yeah, so it's Leo, changed since then. Yeah. Here, here's some interesting alternative history. Um, Gary Kildall, who uh, who started digital research in the Monterey area, near where Tim's staying, um, says uh, in his unpublished memoir, which is actually available via the Computer History Museum, that uh, he and Bill Gates had talked about merging their companies. Oh. And in which case, uh, Microsoft, which at the time was in Albuquerque, New Mexico, would have moved to Pacific Grove. Oh, that would have been wonderful. Mm. 
I that to, would have been a, a very different uh, history of Silicon Valley. <laughs> I used to live on Lover's Seattle. Point in um, in Pacific Grove. I love that area. <laughs> but uh, Kildall thought that uh, um, he he called uh, Bill Gates opinionated yeah. and uh, was always uneasy around him. Yeah. So. And, and by the Take way, well. I think he has said that that's apocryphal that he was flying around in an airplane. Um maybe that's an urban legend but it's a great urban legend yeah Yeah. Uh, for whatever reason ibm didn't do a deal with him and went to a company that did not in fact have a pc dos and uh and bought it from them bill gates didn't even have a tie (laughs) when he went to the meeting and he had to he had to borrow one is that true oh wow oh that's some story like that where he had to buy bought one in the airport or something like that i'm gonna see if i can find i love these old i'm i don't know maybe (laughs) because i'm an old timer i just love these these um Here's the uh, welcome seriously uh, ad, I think. Let me see if I can find it here. It was in the Wall Street Journal. Cleverly positioning the upcoming battle as a two-way contest between the spunky and rebellious Apple and the uh, establishment Goliath. Yeah, here's an image of it from uh, Inc.com. Welcome, IBM. Seriously. Welcome to the most exciting and most important marketplace since the computer revolution began 35 years ago. And congratulations on your first personal computer. (laughs) When we invented the first personal computer system, maybe a little uh, hyperbole on that, we estimated that over 140 million people worldwide could justify the purchase of one if they only understood its benefits. Next year alone, we project that well over a million will come to that understanding. A million people. Wow. Little did he know what IBM was going to do and just kind of dominate the, the space. And to this day, still, PCs dominate. Not, so Apple's IBM not is, of, of course, completely out of that. Business. Yeah. No, they don't do it anymore. Yeah. Although they do have a two nanometer chip. So good. To, good. They're not they're not sitting on the resting on their laurels. Base price for a fifty one fifty one thousand five hundred sixty five dollars. Fully loaded system, more than three thousand dollars. You could have uh, monochrome or CGA. That was the one. And CGA did not, <laughs> not have many colors at all. 16 or 64 kilobytes of RAM. The processor and Intel 88 chugging along it. And I do remember this, 4.77 megahertz. Mega. Blistering. Blistering. Mega hertz. So did Apple have the last laugh? They're still in the personal computer business 40 years on. Yeah, they beat yeah. IBM. Yeah. If anything, IBM's mistake was making it so easy to clone. But if you're talking about the platform that made, that's why they were so successful. You could clone a PC. And so there are thousands of people to this day making what is essentially an IBM PC compatible still. And Microsoft even makes them. That's right. That's a good point. Happy birthday. 40 years ago, August 12th, the IBM PC was born. Um, here's a shocker. I don't know if you watched this in April. We did. We actually streamed Benson Wong's keynote for NVIDIA. Samable Samit and I did. Benson did it from his kitchen as he's been doing during the pandemic, talking about all the different areas. I think NVIDIA is really my, one of the most interesting companies, probably the most interesting chip company out there right now, making chips not only for graphics processors and gaming machines, but also Bitcoin miners, but also graphics processors for cars, artificial intelligence. Uh, They're just firing on all cylinders. (laughs) 
NVIDIA revealed in a blog post this week that that April keynote, that was, uh, was CGI. They modeled his kitchen, but they didn't just model his kitchen. They modeled him. And for at least a portion of the keynote, Benson Wong was not Benson Wong. He was a CGI model of Benson Wong. Now, I have to say, having broadcast that whole thing, I had no idea we weren't watching the real deal. I mean, in a way, that gives new meaning to deep fakes. If you can, without telling anybody, have your CEO giving a keynote, but it's a computer-generated version of him. Look at, here's the... Uh, <laughs> that's creepy <laughs> uncanny valley for sure but uh they got it working pretty well for the fooled me i have to say um they generated his kitchen and the only thing that was a giveaway is that toward the end of the keynote benson's standing there in his kitchen and all of a sudden it goes and flies out in a 3d space and he's standing in the middle of nowhere pretty wild it's pretty terrifying you should have this done put, um, I should have it done for me. Is that what you're thinking, Mike? That's a, you could podcast for First thing I was thinking. I am posing right now. <laughs> I feel like whichever startup could come up with some kind of a, a digital identifier that we can all wear while we're broadcasting that, that oh. will uniquely identify us as being actually us. I feel like that company is going to it's going to go places anyway, and, and I feel like we need that like yesterday. Soon. QR code tattoo on our foreheads. Exactly. Something like that. Yep. It's, pr it's pretty amazing. Um, I, you know, only 14 seconds of Benson was fake, but it was, I couldn't tell you where the 14 seconds were. Um, and, and the kitchen background was entirely, fake. it was always fake. The whole, the yeah, whole yeah, thing. That's, that's, that I think is the thing, you know, you can now put someone anywhere convincingly. It's amazing. Um, Deep fakes, right? I mean, that means you can, the sky's the limit. So Terrifying. Neil Stevenson does talk about this a little bit in his most recent, well, I don't know if it's his most recent, probably is he writes a novel a week, so maybe not, a uh, novel, The Fall. In it, uh, and it's in the near future, kids have um, projected masks they wear that, that are different persona. And when you project the, the mask, face recognition, everything says, oh, this is Leo 3. And he's a partier or whatever. And it's a different persona in order to have kind of some privacy in a world where there's zero privacy. They create their own. Yeah. And I think that I do remember, maybe it was blockchain, but they were using a way to verify that that actually is one of my personas. I think that was in the novel as well. So you, you're not far off, Mike. Yeah. And there's a bunch of CGI, not video CGI, but CGI influencers on Instagram and, you know, some of their followers don't know that they're not an actual person. Well, so there's the TikTok uh, Tom Cruise, right? Well, you're right. There's that one. That's really creepy. They use yeah. a um, Tom Cruise impersonator to get the... Um, here, let me see if I can... To get the face and everything to kind of be roughly a accurate... And then they put on top of it a deep fake of actual of Tom Cruise's face. So the body and the gestures and the movements are this impersonator and the voice. It was very good. It's pretty convincing. Exfoliating product yeah. to really cut through the grime. Okay, just another tip for you talkers. Or the tip... To, <clears throat> the TikTok tips. I, I'm getting too old for that. I don't... <laughs> 
he's really got it's a good impersonation, but made all the better because the face is Tom Cruise's deep fake face. Look, I do a lot of my own stunts, but I also do a lot of industrial cleanup. That's actually pretty funny. I mean, the you know the the scary thing about this is is not that like a company like Nvidia can do it with all of these resources and technology and engineering. It's that. With TikTok and Instagram, you're yeah. seeing yeah. Vid- very simple video editing tools that are sliding into the deep fake territory. <sighs> I guess yeah, it's that's- just you can't, the whole idea of well, well, what I hope is that the world understands before this starts happening that not to believe what they see, but there's still right now this notion. It's part of the problem we're having in this country that if I saw it on the internet, it must be true. Well, you know the uh, the. Yeah, the, the kids today are facing a future where the number of fake things, every, there's going to be so much fakeness in their life. I mean, I don't know if you talked about it on a previous episode, Leo, but the Anthony Bourdain. Um, yeah, that's another good example. Yeah. Right. They have deep fake audio uh, of Bourdain reading his own words, which he never spoke in public, but had written. They were He was reading his own letters and they don't talk about it at all. It's just Anthony Bourdain talking, but it's, it's entirely computer generated uh, audio. And so that's one example. I, I wrote a piece for my newsletter recently called the banality of our deep fake future, because <laughs> what I think is happening is that deep fake fakeness is slowly becoming just ordinary everyday occurrences. Yeah. It's not a big deal. It's not, it's not flipping elections. It's not do, having the disinformation power that we thought it would have. It's really just little things like Anthony Bourdain talking or this NVIDIA guy doing, you know, doing a fake version of himself for 14 seconds during a keynote and sort of showing up in little, in little places. There's a, there's a musical artist who, who basically created this website where anybody else can make music with her voice uh, and invites people to do that. Wow. Um, it's really kind of fascinating. It's her name is Holly Herndon. You can wow. find her on Twitter, but it's uh, it's a, it's a, you know, a, a Twitter site called herd sounds, but anyway, it's, it's just popping up everywhere. And uh, as this Tom Cruise guy, the guy's a professional. They, at first we thought he was some amateur who was doing this, but it's it's so good and so close that we're just right on the verge of deep fake video being uh, undetectable. And that's a whole new world for all of us. Holly Herndon has a uh, virtual v- version of herself called Holly Plus uh, that you can yeah animate with your own songs. <laughs> that's it's kind of creepy. <laughs> it's kind of weird. Uh, Holly dot plus if you want to if you want to play with it. Uh, what does this mean for our post truth future? Was Kellyanne Conway right? Is, uh, is truth overrated? Is uh, are we in post a post fact apocalypse? Well, there were, there was that self driving truck company right that perfect you know. example. But that's kind of the same as Theranos, right? Where they over they promised the world and raised a lot of money, but it had nothing, right? Yeah, I mean, the truck was just rolling downhill. <laughs> <laughs> really? Is that? I didn't hear that part. <laughs> yeah. That's how that video came about. Uh, We've all got a self-driving car. If we just put it in neutral. <laughs> That's ballsy as hell. <laughs> and they were insistent that it was um, 
it was legit. And uh, yeah, they swore up and down to us directly. Yeah, the company was called Nikola or is called Nikola. They are still around. Um, they're promising uh, fuel cell powered uh, big rigs and things like that. And uh, there was a lot of shenanigans going on in the various pr- promotional videos, which are uh, very unfortunate. We'll put it that way. General Motors uh, took a big stake in it. Um, is is I feel like Trevor Milton is now in trouble. Yes or no? Yes, yeah, and I think the ongo- there are ongoing investigations, and I think that we have not seen the end of, of that story. The company is still, tr- again, trying to move on with their technology. They insist that they do have uh, technology that can be developed, but uh, lies extended from, yeah, the, the big one being that the truck never actually worked, despite it being uh, portrayed to work, um, but then also when it came, there's a lot of shenanigans about how many orders they had, and it turns out they really didn't have any orders when they were saying that they had it's many orders, so things like that. Many. It's kind of like telling IBM that you have a DOS you'd like to sell. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> exactly the same. Yeah, that's interesting. You you do trace the uh, the kind of variable ethics of Silicon Valley back to that original sin of uh, Bill Gates. Yep. Yeah, Nikola founder charged with securities fraud a couple of weeks ago over the allegedly fake truck demo rolling down yeah. the hill. I think the big difference here is Bill Gates wasn't going out trying to get investor money to. At least I don't think he was at that point getting investor money to make this happen. He was kind of doing it um, behind the scenes versus Nikola, which was very openly trying to raise investor money and doing various rounds yeah. of uh, a right. rise, that kind of thing. Um, so I think I think that's what changes things in the eyes of the SEC anyway. Yeah. Legally, that's a whole different thing. Yeah. 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 Samsung has uh, announced, they announced this week that they're coming back to the Fold. This time the Galaxy Z Fold 3 and the Z Flip 3. In fact, it really looks like they're so all in on the Fold that they may not be shipping any more Galaxy S phones. This is going to be the flagship Fold phone going forward. As an owner of the Galaxy Fold 2, I am less than whelmed by the whole thing. And I certainly am not going to spend $1,800 on a Fold 3, even though the hinge is now 10% stronger. <laughs> it is wild to see them really, really doubling down on this and really going full full strength ahead with this, given the, the lackluster reactions to, to their folding devices this far, to basically kill off the note effectively and replace that yeah. with the series is, is a very interesting move. I do think we'll see uh, more Galaxy devices coming forward, but uh, but to make this their basically their premium line shows that they've they've got confidence that they've got the durability issues nailed um, and the usability issues. That still, I think, remains to be seen. I, I, I just don't know that you know, these phones going mainstream, it still seems a little early to me, but, but I'm definitely eager to see more of them uh, in people's hands and in the wild. Yeah, yeah. Have they, have they completely lost the plot, though, of the smartphone market? I mean, Xiaomi has overtaken them in Android market share, right? So. Yeah, and Xiaomi announced a new phone pretty much at the same time. That probably it's more conventional, but but probably will do very well. The problem is Xiaomi is a Chinese company which is not sold in the United States. Well, I guess you can get it if you if you shop around, but. Uh, it's Samsung, I, you know what Samsung's strength is really, and and probably why they're so bullish is they are in every phone store in America. Mm-hmm. So wh- whether it's their low end J series or their yeah. very expensive folding phones, you can't get away from Samsung at least in the U.S. And I'd bet it's that way in other countries as well. Yeah, I wonder if these fold folding phones will turn out to be. Uh, accused of being especially and unnecessarily bad for the environment. Because, first of all, we don't know how long, you know, the hinge is 10% better, but how long will it last? Will it it last 
five years? Because th- these could be, end up being phones that are prematurely disposed of and for the f- for the fold. This is really this is really an environmentally unfriendly phone. It's got the big folding screen in the middle, and then it's got another whole screen yeah, on the outside. So you've got you got a lot of wasteful electronics happening, and the whole purpose of that second screen is, oh, I don't feel like going like this. Yeah. So I'm just gonna, uh, you know, and and for for that you're gonna double the environmental impact of the screen technology. And again, when once any part of that breaks, that thing's going in the landfill or or going to be recycled. And I just wonder if at some point when we find out how long they really last and how little resale future that they have after they're manufactured, we may we may end up turning on this technology as an environmentally unfriendly alternative to regular phones. Yeah, wouldn't be surprised. Although nobody's going to make a repairable phone, upgradable phone. That's just not in the cards, unfortunately. Right. But, uh, that's right. Yeah, which is too bad. Uh, speaking of phones, Huawei has been accused in a lawsuit of forcing a third party to install backdoors. This is a small U.S. software maker suing Huawei in court, federal court, alleging Huawei stole its technology, then pressured it to build a backdoor into sensitive law enforcement project in Pakistan. This is a Buena Park, California-based company, Business Efficiency Solutions. Now, it's just a lawsuit. Anybody can assert anything in a lawsuit. We'll follow it with interest. But I have to say, um, there's been a lot of anecdotal evidence that Huawei is not the most ethical company in the world. Well, you know, so I'm just mentioning this as an interesting data point. Yeah, Uh, this is a... a uh, uh, one of those companies that uh, that has just has a history of of uh, doing nasty things. Remember when they when they stole the arm of Tappy, the robot? Right. <laughs> Remember that at a conference, right? <laughs> yeah, that's I, they were getting a tour, I think, or, or something. And they ripped his arm off and stole it. The Father Roberts tells study. stories at a, at a conference of the Huawei engineers going around, not saying who they were, booth to booth, and making notes about other companies' technologies, trying to you know steal their ideas. I, you know, Huawei, yeah. of course, is one of the companies that the U.S. officials have uh, long alleged is uh, is is you know possibly a Chinese espionage arm, and they've been trying yeah. very hard to get countries all over the world to stop using Huawei gear and their 5G. Huawei, which used to sell very nice phones in the U.S., actually had to pull out of the U.S. market when the government convinced Verizon and others to stop carrying Huawei phones. So just an ongoing uh, story. Speaking of phones, this is a breaking story. Uh, I give a lot of credit to a Motherboard's Vice. They've, they seem to have verified this. Um, there is a, a forum, a hacker forum, where a, a seller is claiming to have 100 million records from T-Mobile customers, records they downloaded from T-Mobile's servers. They're offering a part of them for sale, 30 million of them, for six Bitcoin, $270,000. Why? Because these records contain not just your phone number, your name, and your physical address, and of course your phone's IMEI number, but also social security numbers and driver's licenses information. Motherboard has seen, they say, has seen samples of the data and confirmed they contain accurate information on T-Mobile customers. A 100 million customers in the U.S., that's pretty much, I would guess, all of them. 
T-Mobile says we are aware of the claims made in an underground forum and have been actively investigating their validity. We do not have any additional information to share at this time. So, again, another story that's breaking. Could be nothing. Huh. It's it's very scary stuff because of, of the, you know, the security that depends on your phone, right? If you get a text message as your uh, two-factor authentication mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. and a hacker is able to, to um, you know, basically jeopardize that uh, man in the middle of that, then you basically have lost that two-factor security. Well, the fact that they're trying to sell $30 million, uh, out of this $100 million database for more than a quarter million dollars tells you it's valuable. It's you know If it's just name, address, and phone numbers, who cares? But if it's got socials in it, driver's license in it, uh, IMEI, it's valuable for a lot of reasons. Data identity theft, uh, fraud of all kinds. So, um, again, I'm sure we'll hear more about this story in the days to come, but something to pay attention to. This just broke this morning. Let's take a little break. You're listening to This Week in Tech, covering the week's tech news with Mike Elgin uh, of Elgin.com, Owen Thomas of Protocol, my friend Tim Stevens, race car driver and uh, editor at uh, Road... What, what is it? Road... Uh, road Show. I keep, I keep wanting to call it Road Rage. I don't know why. <laughs> I don't know why. I do get angry on the road sometimes, you know, yeah, if, but I try to stay calm. If you call it Kuntash, I could remember that. <laughs> we had wow it means wow in piemontese of course everybody knows that slightly vulgar which makes me want to know what exactly does it mean yeah it, it sounds like if you drive a lamborghini like if you drive a lamborghini like that you're going to be getting tons of kuntash i'll tell you <laughs> yes that. that's what it sounds like okay right? Isn't it? you said it i wasn't i was thinking it <laughs> you, uh, you said it <laughs> we had fun this week on twit we've made a little uh, mini movie for you if you missed anything this is what you missed uh, can I say how silly pants excited I am to be on with Mateo? I was always excited to see what he would bring for, for goats. I'm kind of getting a little nerd Twitter-pated. <laughs> Previously on Twit, Twit News. Today, we're excited to introduce the Galaxy Watch 4 series. Galaxy Watch 4, Watch 4.0 Classic. Very curious to uh, get my wrists into one or both of those to really get a sense of where the line between Samsung and uh, Wear OS 3.0 is drawn. This Week in Google. Cory Doctorow had two, count them, two links to his pluralistic.net blog. There is no path to profit for Uber. But it's doomed and only exists today because of accounting fraud. And the real problem is it's ruined cities because they've deferred investment in uh, public transit. Public transit. Security Now. Probably my favorite talk title of this summer's DEF CON Black Hat. This is You're Doing IoT RNG. Quote, there's a crack in the foundation of Internet of Things security. Leo, you sent it over your ball. One that affects 35 billion devices worldwide. Oh, my God. <laughs> <laughs> Twit. Friends don't let friends miss twit. I fell off my ball on that one. This Week in Tech uh, brought to you this week by IT Pro TV. Actually, it's brought to you many weeks. We love IT Pro TV. These guys, Don Pazette and uh, Tim Broom, started IT Pro TV because of what we were doing here. They said, you know, if you could do that with tech news, 
I bet you could do a live streaming and on-demand courseware for IT professionals to get the certificates they need to get their first job, to get recertified, to get better jobs. And IT Pro TV was launched, and man, they have soared. Um, it's a it's the best online source for IT education, partly because they hired the best people to teach it. I mean, that's always important, right? They call them edutainers. They are experts in their fields, but they also are very good at communicating and just making it fun. You can watch IT Pro TV at home, on your computer, on your iOS or Android device, on Chromecast. They have a Roku and Apple TV app. So you can watch or listen anywhere. They they do it live. They have seven studios running live Monday through Friday all day. Partly that's because there's always new material to cover, new versions of programs, updated exams, new questions, new concepts. So they're always working to bring you the latest, freshest material. 5,800 hours of on-demand IT training in every aspect of IT. Uh All the courses are divided into 20 or 30-minute episodes, nice bite-sized chunks. I think that's important. They know you've got a busy life. Uh, There are transcripts for everything, so you can search for exactly what you want. The edutainers are all staffers. That means they're available there for questions, for suggestions all day, every day. Uh, Also, I have to say, very proud to say, IT Pro TV has become the official video training partner for CompTIA. Those are often the first... Uh, certs that new IT professionals get, uh, the A-plus, Security-plus, Network-plus certs. So if you're looking for CompTIA certs, this is the place to go. Uh, You can also get certified, though, in Apple Security Skills. They've got the Certified Ethical Hacker cert, uh, Python, Cisco, so many more. And it's so easy to do. Whether you're an organization or an individual, if you want to uh, expand your IT skills, if you want to get into IT, this is the place to check out. One IT professional said, quote, this site has helped me with two certifications. Also, as the supplemental material for my grad school classes. I love that. Give it a try. You won't be disappointed. And don't forget, they've got a great webinar on the new CompTIA apprenticeship program. They recorded that earlier this month. It's available on demand now at itpro.tv slash webinars. That's free to everybody. In fact, it's a good way to get a taste of what IT Pro TV can offer. If you're interested, we've got an amazing deal for you. If you go to itpro.tv slash twit, our offer code twit30 will get you 30% off all consumer subscriptions forever. As long as you stay active, as long as that subscription is, is ongoing, you'll continue to save 30%. It doesn't matter. Years if you want. Boy, that's a good deal. ITPro.tv slash twit. Use the offer code twit30. 30% off the lifetime of your active subscription. Great guys really doing a great job. Guys and gals doing a great job teaching, getting you a better job, getting you that first job in IT. ITPro.tv slash twit. Build or expand your IT career and enjoy the journey. ITPro.tv. Uh, okay, let's see. Where else? What else? I'm looking forward to this new book uh, by one of the Android engineers. Androids, the team that built the operating Android operating system, kind of an insider look at the early days of Android, including, uh, and there's a, by the way, an excerpt published in Ars Technica, uh, an excerpt. This is uh, Chet Hasse's book, um, an excerpt from it talking about Google buying it. They met with Google three times. 
And Google was always kind of interested in uh, in Android, but never kind of pulled the trigger. They also uh, talked to other companies, hoping to sell Android to them. Texas Instruments, uh, Linux, in, in part of the story. But they finally, on a third pitch uh, to Google, it's kind of, a, it's actually a fun story. The Android team pitched to a few VCs, mostly on the East Coast, away from Silicon Valley. As Rich Miner put it, Andy had been up and down Sand Hill Road with the Android pitch as a camera OS and already got a bunch of no's. So uh, part of my joining up was to say I have a bunch of East Coast VCs, so they went to mostly new people who hadn't heard about Android. But they were also, at the same time as they were meeting with these East Coast VCs, meeting with Google. In early January, Larry Page asked Andy Rubin to come to Google for a meeting. Remember that Andy had uh, worked at Danger and created the Sidekick, and Page was a huge fan of the Sidekick, the Danger hip top. He wanted to talk about the mobile space with Andy. It was a small meeting, just Andy, Nick Sears, who was working at T-Mobile, Larry, Sergey Brin, and George uh, Harik, an early Google employee from the Google side. Very casual. Google was interested. But uh, it started out with Larry saying, the Sidekick is the best phone that's ever been done, which I agree with. Up to that point, the Sidekick was amazing. And he wanted to see an even better phone made and knew that's what Anders was working on. All he said, though, at the end of the meeting was, well, we'd like to help you guys. Nothing came out of it. Uh, they kept pitching VCs, went back to Google for a second meeting. Same kind of results. They went and visited Samsung and HTC. They thought Samsung wow. might be interested. Yeah. Uh, they blew it. They blew it. KT Lee saying he'd missed his chance with Danger. Didn't want to see that happen again, so he was interested in getting on board with Android. KT Lee told his team to make it happen, so we thought it was a done deal. But then we met with his team of 10-plus mid-level managers who said, who's going to build your OS? When they said, when we said Brian, <laughs> they laughed. They had 300 people working on their own Samsung OS. Samsung asked if the team was dreaming. Nick said, no, 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 really, Brian. And a few other people, they're going to build the OS. They asked, how could that be possible? We said, well, not only is it possible, he already did it on the sidekick. After the business meeting, Samsung hosted a dinner to celebrate the new partnership. But the Android team later learned the deal was contingent upon securing an order from a carrier. And they never were able to make that deal. So they, they, didn't, come, they didn't come away with a deal. Um, but, by the way, that's why the code name for the first Android phone, the G1, is Dream. Because <laughs> that was the in memory of that meeting. It was just a dream. Then they went to HTC... Um, but uh, at the time, Peter Chow, the CEO of HTC, said he wanted exclusivity. Brian heard it. <laughs> By the time we got back to our hotel room, Brian threatened to resign because he didn't join Android to become another danger. And because Brian's right in the OS, <laughs> they, they didn't. They, they said, "Okay, fine, okay." Um, it, it should have been called. It should have been called Brian, Brian OS. OS. But it was actually called Android because uh, it was named after Andy Rubin, whose nickname at Apple was Android because he was so obsessed with robots. He still is obsessed, right? After he was oh, yeah, kind of left fired from Google with an $90 million severance, he, uh, he's, he wanted to get into robots. He has a robotic-enabled house, apparently. Yep. I'd love to go to the house. 
apparently yep. robots answer the door. There's robots everywhere. So he's fascinated with that. Um, I'm curious, actually, how much the book covers a lot of the controversy around Andy Rubin, because obviously there's, there's yeah, I don't think they get big there. cloud hanging overhead. Yeah. I'm guessing the book won't at all. No, they, which, this is really the early days. Um, they had a third meeting with Google, which they thought was to pitch, was of Android team pitching Google. Google was pitching to them and said, and said it would be so much better if we just could buy you. So they did. Which, which apparently they did without even telling Eric Schmidt, who was ostensibly CEO. <laughs> I mean, Eric Schmidt himself said, yeah, one day Larry and Sergey bought hey, Android. We bought this and thing. <laughs> and they didn't even tell me. We got the money. I got rich a check right now. <laughs> and, 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 you know, the, there was tremendous fallout for Schmidt um, from that. Uh, you know, he basically got, um, you know, there there was a very positive relationship between Apple and Google at, at the time that completely blew up over Android. I remember Eric Schmidt having to go to tea with Steve Jobs to calm him down. And, of course, Jobs eventually sued, saying, no, no. You're just copying uh, iPhone. And if you look at the early, um, you know, the early Android uh, mock-up the, that's in the excerpt of this uh, of this book, it looked nothing like it. It was a, right. you know, it was a numeric keypad phone, flip phone, uh, with just a kind of fancier, kind of reminiscent of early Windows Mobile. You know, just a fancy so phone. ugly. <laughs> yeah, but that's what phones yeah. were in those days. I mean. Uh, you know, they didn't have big screens. And, and in fact, uh, as I remember, this, I don't know if this is in the book or not. I'm curious when, I'll, when the book comes out, I'll definitely read it. Uh, when Apple came out with the iPhone, famously, the Android team said, back to the drawing board. We can't ship this. We, and they made it look a lot more like the iPhone. Um, this is the. I mean, but can you imagine Google without Android? I mean, where would it be? You know, that's an interesting question. You know, I've often thought Google should just stick to its knitting and, and do search and advertising. But really, uh, Android and YouTube are huge parts of Google now, That without which I, maybe they wouldn't be the same. Uh, I think Android, I'm just, uh, just one quick thought, Leo. I think uh, the whole purpose of Android is to protect search and advertising on that's mobile. That's true. That's exactly right. Uh, so that yep. they could have the control. I mean, you could imagine Apple just one day saying, no, we're not going to have the Google search engine anymore. Or Google Ads on iPhones anymore, and if Android didn't exist, that that'd be it for them. That's I'm sure what the thinking was, right? It's a rear guard action against Apple. Well, it's also interesting to think about what Android would be like if HTC had bought it, or Samsung, or somebody right. else, because right. you know we look at um, WebOS from HP devices, which was a fantastic operating system, and kind of sort of lives on in, in um, LG's TVs at this point, but. Um, Really, that operating system never got a chance to shine because it, it didn't really have the, the platform to do so. I like Brian's OS. <laughs> yeah. Google should have just hired Brian. Brian Sweatland. Yeah, there yeah. you go. Yeah. Uh, I, you know, the, it, it, almost all of the early great things in technology were just kind of one person with a team around him, but one right. brilliant person. That Those days are long gone, right? You have to have a massive team to do anything, I guess. But that I, I mean, wonder how much you lose by that because the the vision of some person just pushing that forward makes such a difference. Yeah, I mean Instagram was what twelve employees. Yeah, tiny when it was. Yeah. yeah. Uh, let's see. Speaking of YouTube, they're launching new protections for kids under eighteen. They're going to restrict ad targeting of minors, delist photos of kids at their request, kind of the right for kids to be forgotten. 
And then this is this is going to. I wonder how this is going to play out. This comes from the information. YouTube is going to crack down on unboxing videos for kids. Yeah. So this is. Uh, I don't know if if you don't if you don't have a kid and you don't follow this, you may not know how huge these videos are. Uh, the the highest paid YouTube star is a nine year old named Ryan Kaji. He earned $29.5 million last year. He's nine years old unboxing toys. But that's not the only big channel on YouTube. There's PS Toys Reviews, 1.78 million subscribers. Fun Family 3, 1.41 million subscribers. And a lot of these are just opening up toys. Um, But YouTube, trying to protect kids, is kind of interpreting these as, as... product placements or ads and so uh they're very concerned and I, apparently according to uh the uh, information kaya yuriev the information is very well connected these new policies may actually include toy unboxing videos and toy reviews or says Kaya, and creators may be forced to reconsider how they produce videos, such as avoiding showing product packaging so that it's not an ad. They really and are. So videos, yeah, they, they're, they're paid product placements. And they're also even videos um, focused on the excessive accumulation or consumption of products. So even if it's just too commercial to buy, buy stuff, uh, it sounds like they're going to crack down on on that. Anything that basically incentivizes kids to buy something, uh, and so that's that's the end of uh, of, of eight year olds watching Twit, I guess. Yeah, here's uh, Ryan. I mean, you don't make thirty million, almost thirty million dollars a year on YouTube because you're getting advertising. You make thirty million dollars a year because this company, right? <laughs> actually, this is his. <laughs> oh wait, this is his product. It's Chef Ryan's refrigerator surprise. So this is this is another way you make money is by creating your own product tie-ins. This is an ad, right? It's basically an yep. ad. Yeah. There was um, me, with two million views, by the way. There was a startup the, uh, called. Did, sorry, go ahead. I'll, I'll go. Oh, oh, sorry. There, there was a startup called Unbox.tv. Yep. Not very long ago, that was trying to do basically. Uh, you know, systematize this. Do nothing but unboxing videos. Facebook bought them a couple of years ago. Not not really sure what happened. Um, <laughs> Are they doing unboxing but, videos in Facebook? Maybe that's the future. <laughs> I mean, there's a ton of kind of, you know, if you go on the Facebook watch tab, you see a lot of videos kind of like this. I don't think they've really cracked the code like YouTube. Though. Yeah, kind of amazing. Go ahead, Tim. I was going to say, it reminds me of the deregulation of childhood uh, television in, I think it was the early 80s. That's when, right. Um, That's basically, right. all, all the, the great cartoons we think of in the 80s were basically toy commercials that were only possible because of the changes in regulation that allowed um, more advertising direct to kids in the 80s. Uh, and so what was banned in the 70s suddenly became, you know, primetime entertainment for When I was a kid, you could else. watch cartoons all Saturday morning. You get up, you'd watch cartoons like until like uh, mom stopped you. <laughs> and and that's gone now, by the way. Saturday morning cartoons aren't on TV yeah. anymore. And I guess that's probably because, well, you can't put the ads on there anymore. So, 
And and the ads were all cold cereal and toys. Oh, God. Sugary cereal. <laughs> Sugar Smacks, Tony the Tiger. Yeah, that's all it was. Captain Crunch. God, I think about how much Captain Crunch I ate as a kid, and I'm thinking... And my, and my parents were very, you know, they were they weren't neglectful. I'm sure I demanded it. <laughs> I have to have Cap Crunch. That's just basically, you know, haven't have the sugar bowl instead. It won't cut your the roof of your mouth either. Google has put out there is this was actually leaked, but Google is apparently going to let employees work from home, but. There's a calculator that will tell you how much less you will get paid. Both Facebook and Twitter and Google uh, cut pay for remote employees who move to less expensive areas. This is totally fair, in my opinion. Um, I, I've been I've been uh, advocating for people to, you know. Helping helping people transition from full time in office work to remote work. I've been doing that for many years, and one of the tactics that I've always advocated is to go to your boss and go to your company and negotiate a a new contract where you can work remotely at lower pay. So you incentivize them with lower pay, and then you move to some place that has a much lower cost of living. And Silicon Valley is an extreme example. If if you live in well, not Silicon Valley, but Marin County, just north of San Francisco. Hundred and I think it's one hundred and ten thousand dollars a year is the poverty line there, right? So if if you're making a hundred thousand dollars in uh, a year and live in Marin County, you can't make ends meet there because of the cost of living there. So cost of living is 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 always higher where there are tons of really high paying jobs and they're high paying jobs so that people can afford the cost of living, right? There, so it's a connection between where you live. And how much you get paid. So if Google says, "Hey, you can live in, you can live anywhere in the world, but you're going to take a 25 percent pay cut," I would take that deal in a second. Yeah, Google says if you work at home in the same city, we're not going to cut your pay, but they don't right. address the pay cuts that Reuters reports. Uh, pay cuts as high as 25 percent for remote work if they left San Francisco for, for instance, Lake Tahoe, which isn't much cheaper, I guess. Uh, but they're using stats from the U.S. Census Bureau. Um, screenshots of, this is from Reuters' story, Google's internal salary calculator show that an employee living in Stamford, Connecticut, an hour from New York City by train, would be paid 15% less, while a colleague from the same office living in New York City would see no cut. Um, screenshots showed 5 and 10% differences in the Seattle, Boston, San Francisco areas. I guess it's, I mean, first of all, it's a... It, private company of course they can do that and i guess it does make sense you don't have you're not going to pay for commute costs uh you're going to have a, lo a lower cost of uh, living i guess that makes sense i think it's a little bit unfair because they're effectively subsidizing people who choose to live in the city um which which is a little bit distasteful if you choose to live in the city and you choose to live somewhere that you don't have to but you want to live somewhere that you know you like to go out and party or have a lot of restaurants then then should you really be paid more just because just you can do party? that if you're still working <laughs> remotely effectively yeah. um, but for sure i think so long as this is being do being done in a transparent way so that anyone can go on to this calculator inter internally within google and see that this is fair it's being done in an equal way at that point yeah i think it's, it's totally above board and i think that more companies should follow suit and do something again as long as it's very transparent and of course comprehensive that's the other thing i see a lot of companies that kind of have a kind of a half-baked uh, algorithm for 
major metropolitan areas and everywhere else in the world. Right. Um, it's got to be a lot more comprehensive than that. I guess and the question is, what do you get paid for? Do you get paid for the value of the work you're performing? In which case, you're still performing the same value of work wherever you are. So, I mean, I we don't pay people. Well, maybe we do. I guess we take into consideration that you're living in Petaluma, so we're not going to have to pay you as much as if we were in San Francisco. It's one of the reasons we didn't move to San Francisco, frankly. Well, so it's I, an employee market. So if you if you wanted to pay uh, a, a rate that would be a good standard of living in central India in Petaluma, you wouldn't have any applicants, right? right. Because nobody could afford to live on that. So you, so it's it's really about about the market. But to expand on what Tim was saying. I mean, once it becomes normal for remote employees to get paid less, lots of companies are going to revisit and saying, well, why are we hiring people locally? We're paying them 25% more. We could save a bundle if we, With remote if we only hired remotely yeah. at, at the lower pay. And this is part of what I've, I, I talked about uh, recently. There's a, there are, uh, and I've written about it for Computer World. There are a whole bunch of factors that are going to do a lot of damage to, the, to cities uh, because- People are going to move out of the cities. People with, you know, some of the more enterprising people who can work remotely tend to be wealthier people and have higher salaries. This is yet another dynamic where companies may be hiring remotely to save money on on salaries and so on. Uh, bottom line is there's going to be less money in cities, less money to pay taxes, less money going to uh, hipster cafes and restaurants and bars and all those things that make uh, urban centers so nice to live in. As they as they sort of kind of go out of business because their customers are are moving out of out of cities, uh, it makes the city even less desirable, et cetera, et cetera. So I think we're going to have a kind of snowballing effect for some cities, not all. Of course, New York City will always be New York City. San Francisco will will always be able to attract people, but I think a lot of cities in the U.S. are, uh, are facing a crisis. They they're not really aware is coming. Media Dude in San Francisco makes an interesting point in our chat room. Not in San Francisco. I don't know where you are, Media Dude. Media Dude in our, cha in our chat room makes an interesting point. Companies are also saving money with remote workers. Companies yeah. that were leasing huge Absolutely. buildings in San Francisco now are letting those leases go, including Salesforce, which just built a giant phallus downtown. Uh, they don't need all this office space because workers can work from home. Except that they will be probably requiring the workers to come back to those buildings, largely because they've already made that investment. And we're right. seeing uh, so many companies are just blindly forcing employees to come back to, to work, which is really unfortunate, especially given everything going on with the Delta variant. But even beyond that, um, all the learnings that, that we saw, you know, productivity across the board was, was up last year, despite everyone working from home. And you'd think that most corporations would go, oh, this is a no-brainer. But, but from what I'm seeing across the industry – I think corporations are just going to fall right back into the familiar pattern of requiring people to be in the office just like before. And as much as I would love for this to be finally the, the remote work revolution that, that we've all been waiting for for a long time, I, I just don't see it happening. I wish I wish it would because I've worked remote forever and it's it's amazing, but um, it's not for everybody. And I think that the, the people who it's not for are largely the ones making the call. There's always a, there's a personality difference. Uh, Tim, you and I love yeah. being remote. There are lots of people who hate being remote. But what, we, what mm -hmm. we're seeing is a sort of turning of the tides where now the people who love going to office, we're talking about extroverts <laughs> who, who get energy from feeding off of other people's energy. Um, they're going to have to work a little harder to get the in-office job that they want. I think, you know, everything is a competitive marketplace. And so lots of startups, incre increasing number of startups, I think, will be 
remote, all employees, 100% remote right from the beginning. And they'll have a they'll have a financial advantage. They'll have a hiring advantage over the companies that are in a city, hiring people locally and having them come to an office. So we'll see if we'll see if that whole dynamic uh, seriously um, impacts the companies that insist on having no or few remote employees or not. But I have the feeling that going all remote is going to be a big advantage for startups going forward. Let's take a little break. We're going to wrap this up in a moment. It's been so much fun. You guys are so smart. I like having a good, smart crowd on the show. And I have a good, smart crowd listening and a good, smart bunch of advertisers like Crowd strike man you've seen the headlines we talk about it all the time on security now ransomware attack after ransomware attack uh now the latest thing not only do they do they encrypt your data and hold you hostage they they before they encrypt it they steal it and then sell that to the highest bidder they got you coming and going if you feel like it's only a matter of time before they come for you you got to decide am i going to pay am i going to pay that ransomware or am i going to lose everything well, there is a third option. Defeat your adversaries before the fight even starts. I think everybody agrees the best solution to ransomware is not to get it in the first place. Well, that's the idea behind CrowdStrike. It's uh, it's your partner in the battle against ransomware. Secure future demands a shared defense. That's why CrowdStrike, this is really interesting and innovative. Uh, CrowdStrike's Falcon platform uses something they call the threat graph uses advanced AI to analyze behavior, the things that are happening on your devices, your servers, and your cloud workloads to find the threats and stop them. Because they're using AI, they can detect stuff that you would not normally say, oh, there's something wrong here. Slight differences, little things that mean you've been compromised or you're about to be compromised or somebody is trying to compromise you. The CrowdStrike Falcon platform delivers the industry's most powerful set of tools to fight today's most sophisticated cyber attacks. And here's the nice part. It's all delivered via the cloud through a lightweight, intelligent agent. Forrester Studies finds Falcon Complete delivers 403% ROI and 100% confidence. CrowdStrike harnesses the power of every click, every action, every ally to grow stronger and stop cyber threats before they can stop you. Falcon Complete stops breaches every hour of every day through expert management, threat hunting, monitoring, and remediation. And, of course, is backed by CrowdStrike's breach prevention warranty. They don't, they don't just they put their money where their mouth is. They guarantee it. For Falcon Complete managed customers who receive a warranty covering up to $1 million in the event of a breach. Terms and conditions apply. Gartner Magic Quadrant named CrowdStrike a leader for endpoint protection platform for 2021. Join the fight. Experience the power of Falcon Platform. You can try it free right now. CrowdStrike.com slash twit. C-R-O-W-D. Use the crowd to protect you. CrowdStrike.com slash twit. We've got to defend against ransomware. It is the number one threat to business today, and CrowdStrike can help CrowdStrike, because what we've built together is worth defending together. CrowdStrike.com slash twit. We thank him so much for joining us on the Twitch show and helping support our platform. Thanks to you all, too, our members of the Twit Club. Man, you guys are great. Thousands strong. Uh, Club Twit is a way to support what we do with a $7 a month subscription. Now, look, we're not using a paywall. We still offer everything free as we always have, but there are some benefits 
to joining Club Twit, besides just the warm and fuzzy feeling of knowing you're helping keep these shows on the air, you also get a Twit Plus feed with stuff that doesn't make it to the podcasts. Some of the most interesting conversations happen before and after show. We also got the GizFizz on there, our our untitled Linux show. There's access to our great Discord server. I love the conversations in there. Lots of fun. Every show has its own channel, but we also have channels for all the things geeks like. Everything from comic books to data science, philosophy to photography, space and software. It's a lot of fun. And, of course, animated GIFs round out the experience. And then if you want, you can also get... A number of people said, you know, I didn't join Club Twit for this. I don't really need the ad-free versions, but I know there are people who don't want to hear ads, including this promo. Uh, we have ad-free versions of all of our shows, audio and video, a, a feed just for you. And that's another member uh, benefit. Ad-free means tracker-free, by the way. Nobody's logging you. Nobody's keeping track of your listening. So if you want privacy, that's the best way to do it. Seven bucks a month. If you want to know more, go to twit.tv slash club twit. And I thank you so much uh, for all the support we've gotten from our club twit members. It's really a great group of people. And there's some... I actually people- don't... I- I don't think the ad-free version is a benefit. I think I listen to the ads version, <laughs> you know, even though I'm a member, because I don't want to miss. <laughs> it's so funny. Anything. You're not alone. I hear that from a lot of people. In fact, we had to make a channel in the Discord that is the ads you're missing, <laughs> so some people could just listen to just the ads. Wow, um, I know. It's, it's you should strange. have a podcast that's just the ads. just the ads. It's a whole new idea. <laughs> Very wild. Yeah. No. It's really interesting to see how the pandemic has changed so much, and not just temporarily, but permanently. You wrote an article in Computer World, Mike, about business travel, uh, which died during the pandemic, of course, because nobody wanted to get an airplane, but not coming right. back. Right, that's right. So what happened was the during the pandemic, uh, companies learned a whole bunch of things. First thing they learned, the most important thing they learned, is that who knew zoom and all these other uh, video conferencing <laughs> they solutions send actually you work. to shanghai to meet with the they work great yeah and they also learned how incredibly wasteful business travel has always been you have people who are making decisions about when and where and why they go on business trips who themselves don't have to pay for it right. and so they're like sure i'll book i'll book 3 days in advance of the trip which is way more expensive i'm going to stay at the really nice hotel cuz they give me all the points i want i'm going to fly first class because you know etc cetera, etc cetera, etc cetera. they're making all these decisions and you think about all those decisions that are made around business travel at a massive scale especially for like one-on-one meetings. Oh, I'm going to fly to Berlin because I'm going to meet with this guy because, you know, we're, you know, maybe we're going to work out a deal or something. Uh, and companies are, now that they've gotten a taste of not paying for business travel, they're thinking, wait a minute, why w- did we used to spend so much money on business travel? And so now there, there's a new um, concept that's circulating within companies about, um, about, forcing business travelers to justify the ROI on every trip. Why are you going? How are we going to, how is your trip going to monetarily pay for itself through what you're going to be doing on this trip? So it's kind of the, kind of the end of the, what's the ROI on the trip? Yeah, exactly. And so there's also a, 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 realization that the, the, you know, generally that's been building for a long time that, the travel in general is environmentally uh, has an environmental impact. And so companies who are hoping to show how, you know, hoping to launch new initiatives to be greener 
one actually easy way is to reduce if you can cut business travel by half you can you can demonstrate uh very very easily that you have a much lower carbon footprint so all these factors are going to really transform the business travel industry and by the way business travelers uh, as i point out in in my article uh they make up a tiny fraction i think it's 12 percent. i don't have it in front of me of the number of people traveling on airplanes but they they give the airlines 75% of their profits. Wow. And so with that substantially being reduced, the airlines, the hotels, the whole travel industry is in for a whole lot of uh, of change and not the kind of change they really want. So it's going to be an interesting period of time over the next three years looking at travel, business travel, and the, and the travel industry. What happens to airlines? I think, I think, though, there's going to be a whole new business travel market, which is getting remote workforces together, like, you know, probably twice a year, you're going to fly the yeah. entire company somewhere really nice. I mean, that could sounds be like good. A, yeah, I could like be that. a boom for like Hawaii, Mexico, <laughs> yeah, yeah. you know, just like nice places to hang out versus kind of or, business center destinations. Or more likely dragging them back to headquarters. I, I talked about this in the, in the article as well. I also think that there's other points of additional travel, one of which is that we have this concept of the workation uh, and the and, and, and yeah, Lisa and I wanted to concepts. move to Barbados for a year uh, instead of. Yes. Yeah. I wish we Absolutely. had. Absolutely. <laughs> but but it, it, I think that I, I'm predicting that there will likely be some companies that will fund some, uh, all or part of workations for some of their employees yeah. as a kind of perk. Yeah. So it's like, well, you know what? It's like a sabbatical. You go to Barbados for a month, keep working, you know, work full time, but we'll pay for your airfare and something else and sort of incentivize workations. Because workations are great, especially for companies that don't want to really – uh, pay for vacations. You actually bring up something else I had not heard about, but I thought was very interesting. The same article, the digital travel credential, replacing passports yes. with your smartphone. Yeah, this is something the UN, uh, it's a UN agency that handles the standards for uh, for passports, is working on a digital version of your passport. So just like uh, we have uh, mo- uh, uh, Global Entry and some of these other programs where you get to bypass some of the, you know, essentially people you bypass security or bypass this bypass that we're getting to a point where face recognition would just let you bypass everything you just walk into the airport it recognizes you yep go right onto the plane uh it'll handle your passport it'll handle your digital health certificate a separate one will uh it'll handle your ticket uh all that stuff so we're, we're you know a mobile phone and your face in a database is going to be the key to having travel be a lot more convenient and also less private. But traveling with privacy is uh, a thing of the past that will never exist again. Oh, yeah. We know that's gone for sure. Yeah. yeah. I mean, they always scan my passport when I cross the border, so I'm sure I'm in a database. So why not have it on your phone? And you say it'll be uh, use blockchain, which is, I think, interesting. Yeah. Isn't that interesting? Yeah. Yeah, I, I, it's kind of a, a a surprise there. But there are all kinds of things that are happening. So, for example, one one of the things that I think is really interesting is that driver's licenses and I, identification cards are issued by states. 
Okay, so what's happening is that the federal government is mandating uh, a, a new thing um, that um, called Real ID, right? Which you won't be able to travel domestically without a Real ID compliant driver's license in I think it's uh, May 2023. And so this is basically a little thing that goes on your uh, license, so that essentially it turns your state issued license into a national license as well. So I, I went and got my real, I went to the California DMV here uh, last week and got a real ID, you know, applica- there's an application process. You fill out a form and and, and they go and they check there's something. There's higher and- standards of identification. You have to really prove you are who you say you are. That's uh, right. But the idea that you can't fly domestically without yeah. essentially a federal, federal ID. Yeah. ID yeah. is kind of a new thing in the United States. Something that I, they're putting I, I into the, the back door, actually. Yeah, yeah. I did the opposite. Um, my driver's license was uh, was up for renewal, and I did not want to go to the DMV, so I opted to get the regular driver's license, not a real ID, because I already had global entry, right? Which serves mm-hmm. as right. real ID. Well, when I bought it, when I got a passport last time, I got a passport card, and I've asked the TSA, "Can I use this to get on an airplane?" And they said, "Yes." Of course, that's a federal ID, so right. it's a real ID. Um, yeah, yeah. Privacy's dead as far as travel goes. I think that's pretty, yes, that's pretty. Unless you drive right. everywhere, you're going to definitely be tracked as you uh, as you do it. I, I would like to make one other point about privacy because you'd mentioned it, I think, on a on a on a couple of shows this week. I don't recall which ones, but basically the fact that uh, late last year, uh, the, the, there was a court that sort basically said the Fourth Amendment doesn't apply to your right. phone or your laptop and any other stuff. Right. You can do advanced searches. We can just download everything. We don't have to have a reason or a warrant or anything. You know, it's pretty pretty extreme change from before before the pandemic when everybody used to travel to after the pandemic once we travel again. Totally different world. But I actually believe that this isn't going to hold up in the courts. This will go up and up in the courts. And I think in the end, I'm optimistic about this, that the, the current status is not going to survive the the, the appeals process. Uh, call me too optimistic, uh, but I, I don't think this is a permanent state of affairs. Well, I hope not. We'll bring you back when that all shakes out. Yeah. Uh, hey, I thank you all for staying late. I know you probably want to get back out there and look at the Aston Martin 217-mile-an-hour convertible, the Valkyrie. Wow. I don't know if I'd want to drive 217 miles an hour in a convertible, but this looks like the Batmobile. Well, don't worry. If you don't have the roof on, it'll only do 205. Oh. It's much better. A little safer. <laughs> it, by the way, it has, I noticed, that yoke steering wheel that Elon Musk is putting on the X's and S's now. That's this is a different sort of car, though. This is a, a really a track-only car, so you'll, you'll oh, never okay. really need to turn the wheel more than this. You're not going to be doing any three-point turns or anything like that. This is really designed to give you professional-level race car performance in something that you can buy and you can go play with yourself. You can buy for how much? Uh, I believe the pricing of these is around, uh, we're still talking around the $3 million mark. For those oh, guys, if I well, there you go. Nothing. Uh, <laughs> um, what do you think does of it, Elon putting does it come that? With, uh, does it come with an underground lair at that point? It really ought to. Yeah. Wow. <laughs> it really looks like the Batmobile, doesn't it? It's a wild thing. Do, uh, what do you think of Elon putting that yoke on regular street vehicles? That seems uh, like it's a horrible, yeah. horrible mistake. Yeah, yeah. absolutely. The usability is 
horrible on that thing. Uh, I'm concerned there's a little bit of a safety issue yes. as well, uh, both in terms of what happens in a crash because you have more sharp edges than you would in a, a normal round steering wheel that will naturally prevent your hands from being in a bad place. Uh, but also if you are, you know, if you're doing the typical uh, cruise autopilot thing where you've kind of got one hand on the wheel just enough to, to keep the system going and suddenly you have to make an emergency reaction, you reach up to grab the wheel, but it's not where you're expecting it to be, um, that as well could be a big issue. So I think it's a really bad decision on multiple fronts and, and I, I was really sad to see that it actually yeah. did go to production. And he said, uh, no, there won't be a round wheel option. You just have to live with the yoke. Sorry. It's a Here, big mistake. Yeah. Here's the Bugatti. Bolide, 1,500 plus horsepower. That's another Batmobile. These are looking like yeah. race cars, but that's really what they are, isn't it? Yeah, that's really where we're seeing a lot of money from these ultra exotic car companies is creating these very, very limited edition. I think uh, the guys can make 40 of these. And of course, they're all sold too. But these are very, very specifically tuned for track performance. Uh, so this is, again, not a car you're going to be taking on the road. And this one, I think, is $5 million. So we're getting even more expensive. This is just uh, but- evidence that there's too many rich people in the in the world. And, and they're all here in Monterey this weekend, as a oh, matter of fact. My Coincidentally. God. <laughs> uh, but these companies are, are, are learning that they can create these ultra limited edition versions of their already extremely expensive cars and make them even more expensive, uh, which then gives them a whole lot of money that they can then roll into the next generation cars. So that's a, a huge trend we're seeing this year is all these very, very limited production teens or maybe a hundred of these cars selling for millions of dollars each. And they're being bought up instantly before they even are, are made publicly available. With that small uh, number of units, is, is it profitable or is it just more a uh, showcase yeah. for the company? Yeah, because these cars are typically based on earlier production versions of the car. So they may, may be, you know, tuned up to have more power, some different bodywork on there. And, of course, lots of bespoke stuff. You can get these configured any way you want to, any color, anything you want. Um, but largely, they're based on existing platforms. Uh, so, therefore, the, the R&D development has already been covered. Uh, all the crash testing has already been done, largely. So therefore, they can just, uh, you know, put a lot of accessories on there, basically, and, and dial up the profit margin in a big, big wow. way. Read all about it, cnet.com slash roadshow. Tim Stevens, editor-in-chief. It's great to have uh, you on the show, as always. Thanks, Leo. Always a pleasure. Enjoy the concours d'élégance. I shall. I like the old Bugattis myself. Those are, those, I do too. Those are pretty, yeah. Uh, Mr. Mike Elgin's heading back out on the road. Oh, poor guy's got to go to Prosecco. Yep, somebody's got to do it, Leo, and... Uh... And, and uh, you know, once again, we have a, a room available if anybody wants to join God, us. I'm We'd love to have you. I'd love to be yeah, in Italy for Labor Day weekend. It's going to be glorious. <laughs> oh, hey, can I do a quick pl- another quick plug, Leo? For Kevin's uh, hydrogen vehicle? For Kevin's other hi- other projects, <laughs> Chatterbox. <laughs> He's having a great year, by the way, because oh, educators good. are really uh, starting to talk a lot about uh, Chatterbox. Um, it's becoming clear that kids need to understand AI because they're going to be living in an AI world. And this is the only product that you can build something and actually learn how AI works. So hellochatterbox.com is the URL. If you want to check it out, sign up for the newsletter or whatever, buy one. A lot of adults are doing it. Educators in Europe are buying it to teach adults uh, some of these concepts. It's just a great way to learn. And then also you end up with a smart speaker that can do anything you want it to do, but you got to teach it. And that's the whole point. You got to teach it yourself. So it's a very, very cool product. You know, I'm thinking maybe I should do do you program in Python. What language uh, are you working? He's got his own, he's got his own interface. 
uh, and it's you know complete with AI uh, with uh, you know uh, access to all kinds of APIs. So you learn about APIs as well. But it's his own interface. It's like Lego, like plugged together. Oh, when I say this, do yeah. this. Kind of like and what you, you did with build- the, with Tinker, right? It's similar to that. Yeah, it, it's kind of similar to that. Yeah. Um, and uh, but this you get to immediately test it, and it's all voice, of course, uh, right. very private. Neither Chatterbox nor any of the partners can possibly know who is using it, which is really kind of an interesting thing. And so uh, it's just a beautiful product, and I think everybody ought to give it a try. Great for schools, educators, parents, smart kids, and maybe even a few adults. Hello, chatterbox.com, a smart speaker that teaches AI literacy. It's a great idea. I'm thrilled that Kevin's doing well with it. That's really great. He's doing really well. That's yeah, really thank you. great. I'm so happy for him. Thank you, Mike, for being here. Thanks to uh, Owen Thomas. Always a pleasure. Politico, senior editor. I'm sorry. God damn Protocol. it. Gosh darn it. Let's, let's rewind. Senior editor at Protocol. I knew that all along. I'm sorry. I this is just me. It's what I do it, every single time. There, you know, there are big sister over in Washington. Yeah, I like protocol. Actually, I read protocol pretty regularly. We uh, we quote from it often. So it's a, it, because it covers these, as you said, these these kind of fun, fundamental issues uh, with big tech. Um, it's great, great publication. Thank you. Yeah, if you um, if you have a moment, check out protocol.com/newsletters. There will probably be one that. Uh, you want to subscribe to, and it's free. I, you know, I got to find a way because I subscribe to a bunch of newsletters, and they always end up in spam or some other place. I got to find out a way. There's got to be a better way to handle newsletters. I think Hey.com was going to do something about that, like it would have a special mailbox or something. Look, you got gaming, Definitely. workplace source code, enterprise China fintech policy pipeline. Are you involved in those at all? I edit the fintech uh, and pipeline newsletters. Nice. Pipeline is our venture capital insider take from Biz Carson. Nice. And you got Yanko is over there now, Frickers, who was, uh, of course, at GigaOM and then later Variety. He's great. Really smart guy on media. So uh, you've got a good team. And, of course, I hear Megan Maroney is a pretty nice person, too. That's nice. We, uh, we're really glad she's aboard. Do you get to see her? Or do you go into the office? Yeah, actually, uh, we, we had a uh, dim sum lunch uh, the other day. First, first time meeting Oh, nice. Up. Yeah. Yeah, I think, uh, I, I hope you got a lot of the people who uh, Ev forced out over Medium. <laughs> uh, I, I, I hear Medium is changing its business model again. Again. It's, and then know. and Ev's, uh, Ev's answer to that is, we've never changed our business model. It's always been the same. All right, whatever. Except, well, he said, we've, you know, it's always been the same, but we should have changed our business model faster and more frequently. <laughs> we don't change In it, and effect. we should change it. <laughs> All right, whatever, whatever. Protocol.com. Sign up for the newsletters. Thank you. It's great to have you, Owen. Always a pleasure to see you. Someday we'll have all three. All three of you Well, are in the Bay Area, sort of. Could have had this in studio, but no. Darn COVID. Maybe someday we will. All uh, I can say to that is Kuntash. Kuntash. <laughs> <laughs> it's a Piedmontese vulgarism that means what? Or something. (laughs) (laughs) We do this week in tech every Sunday afternoon, 2.30 Pacific, uh, 2130 UTC, 5.30 Eastern Time. I mention those times because you can watch us do it live. 
Uh, tune in early because you want to get the conversation before and after. Twit.tv slash live has a live audio and video stream for you. If you're watching live, chat live at irc.twit.tv. Of course, Club Twit members can also chat live in the Discord. We have on-demand versions of the show available at our website, twit.tv. There's a, a twit.tv has, a, rather, a Twitch show has a a YouTube channel dedicated to it, so you can go there. You can also subscribe in your favorite podcast, audio and video available for podcast clients. If your podcast client supports reviews, please leave us a five-star review. Share your love. Let the world know about This Week in Tech. We make it for you. Uh, what else? Join the club. Don't forget the cruise. It's filling up fast. I think we're well over 100 people. Cruise.twit.tv. Lisa and I and Paul... Therat and his wife Stephanie were all going to Alaska. By the way, I just got the uh, list of excursions. Oh my gosh, there's so many fun excursions. We're gonna we're gonna publish a list of the ones we're signing up for, so that those of you going on the cruise can join us if you want. Um, there's there's helicopter. The one I think we're gonna do, you get to mush huskies Iditarod style on a glacier. I think that sounds amazing. Uh, so many interesting excursions. Find out more at uh, cruise.twit.tv. We're going to Alaska next July. So you got you might say, oh, I've got a little time, but you got to sign up because these things fill up fast. Uh, and we would love to, love to see. It's going to be a lot of fun. Cruise.twit.tv. Thanks, everybody. We'll see you next time. Another twit is in the this can. This is Bye-bye. amazing. 